This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 557 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Derek Robinson. Now, Derek is not only a veteran firefighter, but also the author of Continue, Surviving the Darkness, Choosing to Live. So we discuss a host of topics from Derek's early life, his introduction to swimming, lifeguarding in Australia, his journey into the fire service, his own personal mental health journey, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 550 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Derek Robinson. Enjoy. Derek, I want to say, firstly, thank you for your patience because we talked about doing this interview for a while. And secondly, welcome finally to the Behind the Shield podcast. Well, James, as I like to say uh, in these interviews, I'm just happy to be here. But uh, especially with you and, and having gone through this process of trying to get on and coordinate our schedules, uh, I hold your show in high regard. So it's an absolute honor to be on your show. Beautiful. Well, I mean, firstly, like I said, it's, it's an honor to have you on the show too. But secondly, this will be an interesting walkthrough because the first time we talked, if I'm not mistaken, you were thinking about writing a book or had you actually had you actually written? I, I think when I, we first talked, I was kind of in the process and, you know, I honestly never thought I'd write a book. Uh, this all spawned from a Facebook post and I was encouraged by some friends to write a book. Still didn't think I had it in me, uh, but part of my um, therapy sessions or my counseling was uh, to start writing down my stories and st start writing down the things that you know were still bothering me. And so, uh, really, my journal became the book. And so, um, once it just kind of hit a point where I had enough pages in a journal, I thought, well, maybe maybe this is enough to actually write a book. And then I knew there were a couple chapters or journal entries still in me that I hadn't gotten to yet. And so that's when I reached out because that, your book had been published and I was trying to figure out how do I find a publisher and, you know, I just kind of overwhelmed by the whole thought of actually publishing a book. Beautiful. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you did. And it's so cool because I, for everyone listening, I finished reading your book this morning. So it is done. It is out there. It is making a difference. Um, but I've, I'd say, you know, everyone should write a book and mine started the same way. A whole bunch of blog posts on the website that again, we're missing a few chapters. I expanded on a bunch and then, yeah, it's so easy now. It's a lot of freaking work, but it's actually easy as far as, um, the process now to write a book. So I encourage everyone out there to do it. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. We all have stories to tell. And I certainly try to encourage people to share their stories. 
in this realm because it's so important to know that other people have struggled with the same things you have. And so the more times we share, the better off we can be as a collective, you know, educating others and, and preparing, you know, firefighters for the things that or first responders for the things that we see on a regular basis. Absolutely. All right. Well, then we're going to get, you know, deep into the woods when it comes to, to that journey. But before we start, <laughs> where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Oh, I am in the lovely Central Valley of California, uh, specifically Bakersfield. And uh, it's a bit chilly this morning, but uh, the sun is shining. It's actually cold here in Ocala, too. It was 38 last night, which for oh, Florida wow. is, uh, is pretty low, but it was gorgeous. Yeah, that's chilly. I don't think we got that low last night, but... Uh... I'm sure, it war- I'm sure it warms up quite a bit more there than it does here. Well, it's weird. And it's the same. It reminds me of California when I live there. But when it's cold, but it's blue skies and, and the sun's out, it's it doesn't feel cold. You know, it's a different kind of cold versus, you know, gray and rainy, which is what I grew up around. Yeah, well, I sat out on the patio this morning having some coffee um, in just a pair of uh, board shorts and uh, trying to uh, kind of adapt or in... in uh, trying to adopt some of the uh, things that Wim Hof talked about when he was on your show. So just sitting out there with some coffee, a good book, and uh, really trying to work on my breathing. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he was amazing. Well, yeah, I, that, that, that was a great podcast. I was cracking up. That guy <laughs> is so full of life and just like some of his comments, I was just dying. Yeah. No, he doesn't pull any punches. <laughs> yeah, that's no, good. All right. Well, then, so starting at the beginning of your journey, so tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. So I was born in Hawthorne, California and uh, to my mother and father, uh, my mother, I'm not sure what she was doing at the time. I can tell you what she was doing afterwards. Uh, The funny thing to me was when I looked at my birth certificate recently, uh, my dad, who was I think about 23 or 24 at the time was had listed himself as a motivational speaker. And uh, I thought, wow, at 23, 24, what 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 life experience do you have that you could be a motivational speaker? But it's just very true to, you know, who my dad was um, just kind of a in a lot of ways, a lost soul and probably looking for he probably honestly probably at the time didn't have uh, anything regular. And so that was his way of, you know, kind of um, puffing up his chest or making himself feel good uh, by putting that on the the birth certificate. But looking back, it's kind of a it brings a smile to the face for sure. So um, and then my family dynamic, uh, my parents were divorced young. Uh, I I think before I was five years old, uh, they were divorced. Uh, My father had become a police officer with Inglewood Police Department. And uh, they had separated. He'd moved on. Um, they both came into the marriage having had a son prior. So I have two older brothers. And then from there, uh, my dad continued to procreate. My mom, uh, after my younger sister, had stopped. So at the end result is I have four brothers and three sisters. Uh, so seven, six of them are from my dad, who uh, was married and divorced eight times. And uh, again, I guess it goes back to the motivational speaker. How does someone convince someone to marry them after the second, third, fourth, or even eighth time? You know, just amazing 
to think back and I would just, it's kind of one of those things I wish he were still here because I'd love to pick his brain to figure out how, how he did it. You know, it's just amazing. But we always joke about our family dynamic because to figure us all out or to keep track of where everyone is, you truly need a, uh, a, um, uh, a whiteboard to write it all down and keep track because it's it can be confusing. So, you know, when you read the book, you obviously see the impact of that. And, you know, when you think about uh, a police officer, you think about a man who ultimately was married and divorced eight times that had multiple kids from multiple women, you, you know, could hypothesize that maybe there was some trauma early in his life. So I know you talked about the kind of relationship with you had. Did you ever get any kind of idea of maybe some of the earlier life or and or some of the trauma that he saw working in Englewood? You know, uh, he liked to tell stories about his Englewood days, but it was more about his he had a knack for um, seeing a car and knowing it was stolen. So he used to tell those stories. Uh, I know he mentioned one time that uh, there was a contract out on his life for a while. Um, but he didn't go deep into any stories. Uh, he loved his days as a cop, which were cut short in a motorcycle accident. He'd gotten hit um, um, by a vehicle, and that pretty much ended his career with ankle and shoulder injuries. But I know there were some traumatic episodes from his childhood. I know he, uh, the family dynamic wasn't healthy where he grew up. And a lot of these things you learn later on in life and things he didn't always tell. But uh, one of his famous stories was um, his, his father was an alcoholic, so his father wasn't uh, very engaged in his youth. And I know it was always traumatic for him that his father had passed away before he ever graduated high school. But he also told a story. My, my grandmother's from uh, Mexico City, and um, fiery as all get out. She was the matriarch of the family until she passed. But his famous story was uh, her chasing my grandfather around the house with an iron. Uh, and he had, uh, at some point, I guess, stopped and turned around and snapped a photo. So there, there was a photo at some point which I'm sure is long since uh, destroyed of her holding a, a iron over her head as she was chasing him. So uh, the fi- family dynamic has always been, uh, um, I guess, robust and not uh, always the healthiest. Yeah, that would be a hilarious picture to find, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 w- I wish that I could find that, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure that got destroyed. So. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's sad though. We look at you know, so many of the people that I've had on here, you know, and and a lot of them. What's beautiful and the same with you is, you know, they finally were able to say enough is enough, and it does. It wasn't a rocky, you know, rocky. Excuse me, it wasn't a smooth road up to that point. Yeah. It was very rocky. However, they found that strength, that fortitude to turn it around. But when you look at the ripple effect of broken homes, of, of addiction, of you know, mental ill health. It's a it's a domino effect unless one of those dominoes can finally stand tall and and you know stop it happening to their children. Yeah, and and I think um, as our family has grown older and talked more, um, it, it's probably more likely that my dad had some uh, form of mental illness, but never diagnosed and unfortunately never treated. Um, so it's just something to be mindful in my own life as well, you know to always be on guard for you know those things that obviously now are uh, more prevalent haven't gone through what i did so 
Absolutely. Well, I know swimming was, you know, is a huge part of your life. So let's talk about sports as a young man. What what were you playing? Yeah. And then tell me about your introduction to the pool. Okay, so I was uh, a kid trying everything. I uh, tried every sport out there, um, especially across the street. There was a park and we'd be over there. So I played basketball, football, baseball. But I was small in stature, and uh, I was always – I had epilepsy as a child, so I was always told that I was small in stature because of the phenobarbital I'd taken my whole life. I finally grew out of it around 11, 12 years old, uh, and then that's when I hit my growth spurt. And I went from 4'11 to, I think, 5'6 in eighth grade and finally found my my growth uh, spurt or whatever. But – Look now with my own son, his experience, he had hit, he had his major growth spurt at the same time. So I'm thinking maybe it wasn't the phenobarbital, but that's just what the doctors had said back then. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't the biggest, strongest athlete. Uh, my biggest success in uh, baseball came when, uh, one of the older kids across the street began to tutor me and, and had me starting to uh, hit like, or get in a stance like Pete Rose and hit like Pete Rose, not trying to hit home runs every time, but just get the ball and play. Um, it, during those days, we had a pool in the backyard and uh, that pool uh, was host to all the kids in the neighborhood. Um, my mom hated it because we would feed all the kids while they were there. Uh, so of course they wanted to come over. Um, we, uh, we were in that pool every day, even in the winter, um, turn, you know, turn on the heater against our mom's uh, wishes. And, and, uh, you know, we were, my brother and sister and I, we were a, a rambunctious group anyways, uh, during the, that time, uh, you know, I was high energy still am to this day. And my mom was trying to get me into swimming back then when I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old. And, uh, this mind you, this is Southern California. And she, when she told me it was year round, I thought, no way, I'm not swimming in the winter. It's cold in the winter in Southern California, right? Fast forward several years later and I'm in college and swimming in college and coming out on coming out on the deck in the morning and there's ice on the blocks and I'm like, this is cold. So uh, I didn't find swimming until I actually moved to Visalia to live with my dad. And um, we had a pool in the backyard again there and um, I decided I wanted to give it a try. So it took me down to try out for the rec team and um, – was immediately accepted. I'm sure it would have been accepted regardless of skill uh, because, you know, as long as you pay the, the monthly fee or whatever, they would have probably taken anybody they could get. But it, you know, felt like an accomplishment to me to be kind of, I guess, chosen in the sense like, yeah, you're good enough. You're, you're on the team type of thing, <laughs> you know, very simple. But, uh, you know, as a 13-year-old kid, it was definitely a, a significant moment to me to kind of have that acceptance and, and finally feel like I was having some success athletically because I, I never had it in my younger days, um, you know. And so my, my dreams of becoming the next Steve Garvey or the next Terry Bradshaw were dashed as a child because I just never had the talent level to achieve that success. So, so when did you start seeing success in the pool competitively? Uh, I think so. I may be slightly off on this, but the best of my recollection at 13, my first uh, rec league meet, I actually qualified for uh, what they call the Valley championship. So I was in Visalia, California and it was uh, all the schools in the Central Valley and uh, in the rec league. And so my first meet, I 
I think I swam the 50 free or maybe the 50 back and I qualified for the Valley championships that first time. And everyone was like, wow, that's really good for a first time somewhere. And I thought, all right, maybe this is my jam. You know, maybe this is where I finally, uh, you know, achieve something athletically. So it was, I mean, the success in one sense was almost immediate. Um, but you know, then again, the standard, it's not like I qualified for, you know, the junior nationals or the national championships. It was a small rec league in central Valley of California, but it was still enough to inspire me to keep going. Now, as we touched on before, you know, your father obviously was, was in and then out periodically. Um, I think there's a lot of us that vie for our parents, you know, attention and, um, uh, admiration is the wrong word, but you know, to, to impress them, to, to feel loved, the validation. That's what I'm looking for. Um, and I remember even I was a little bit older than, than the age you're talking about. I want to say I was more like 16, but I won national tournaments in Taekwondo and my dad never saw one tournament, you know, so I got very used to just like coming home, sticking it on a shelf and, you know, getting on with my life. Um, what about that, that element, um, with you and, and your relationship with your dad? Yeah. So, uh, I definitely, uh, that was kind of my way of trying to seek validation or approval from my dad was to excel at something, anything. And I really thought that as I continued to progress in swimming, that I would get his kind of approval or, um, acceptance. And, um, I just remember, I don't know, somewhere around my junior, senior year in high school, you know, I'd had a good meet or maybe had swam well at the CIF championships or the high school championships. And, and, his comment to me, I, I, I went, I remember going up to him like thinking, yeah, dad, did you see that? You know, cause he was there and, and, uh, I just remember him saying, you know, I just always wish you'd played football. And I thought, what a gut punch and kind of like, what a dick, you know, <laughs> like, did you not just see what I just did? I mean, so it was, I think, I think maybe it was, uh, my junior year, we had won the, uh, the CIF, uh, title and the medley relay, 200 medley relay. And it was somewhere around that time. And, and I just I, I, I stood there and kind of just dumbfounded and shock and awe, kind of like, wait, so all this means nothing to you, you know? And, and uh, you know, we talked about it later and, and, you know, I'd even told him how much it, it hurt and everything. And he he certainly felt bad for it years later and, and kind of carried it with him. Unfortunately, I didn't mean to reverse engineer that on him, but, you know, um, I've, I've kind of through all this uh found this place where it's like i'm not i, I don't want to hold back you know i mean I, i'm not gonna uh, i might choose my words differently to kind of um spare someone's feelings but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna compress or suppress my feelings um and because that's what led me to where i ended up um you know i just feel it's better to be able to have a um, good conversation, a good dialogue with anyone. And I'll even, I don't want to delve into politics, but I think that's what's missing with everyday life is we can't have a simple, simple dialogue and conversation about any topic without someone getting, you know, kind of, um, off, um, kilter or upset or start spewing, you know, whatever dialogue they've been, uh, fed through their news source and, and all that. But, uh, I really value the opportunity to have a good conversation with someone. And, uh, you know, that was something that was always foreign to me. I mean, like 
girlfriends in the past. Hey, we need to talk. And that simple phrase was like, oh, shit, we're breaking up. It's over type of thing. It was just it was such a negative connotation to me that it took me a lot to figure out that it's okay to talk and, t- and you could actually it could be fruitful and, and positive. And so it's, uh, it's, that's all part of my growth process though. But, um, as a, as a young person, I was, I was more of a, uh, a wallflower, um, and kind of, uh, let my actions do the talking as opposed to, uh, my words. Yeah, I can relate. I really can. So what about our career aspirations? What were you dreaming of becoming when you were school age? Well, school age, young school age, I was going to be the, like I said, the next Steve Garvey or Terry Bradshaw. And that really didn't work out. When I got into swimming, I really had the idea that I was going to be an Olympic swimmer, uh, the top backstroker in the world at that point. This was 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles was Rick Carey. And I wanted to be the next Rick Carey. Uh, As far as job aspirations, I didn't really have anything but, you know, we we grew up relatively poor, uh, especially when I was living with my dad. We probably could have been on government assistance, but my dad was too proud to ever um, file or apply for that. Uh, I remember as a kid, my mom worked three jobs. Uh, and even with my brother and sister and I helping out, she'd be typing away every night doing letters and then she turned the letters over to us and we'd stuff the envelopes and seal them and stamp them. And so it was a family affair. So by the time I got into college, I was going to be a businessman and I was going to be rich. You know, I envisioned myself wearing a suit, carrying a briefcase. And then uh, because I swam in college, I was given preferential uh, registration. So I graduated um, four years later, uh, a couple days shy of my 22nd birthday. And I thought, uh, nope, I'm not ready to go to work. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to start at 22 and work the rest of my life. And so I took a year off. And I convinced my parents to pay for my graduate degree since I had earned a scholarship uh, for swimming and they agreed. And so then I um, pursued my master's. By the time I was done with that, I was in my mid-20s and I had fallen into lifeguarding, actually, uh, after my freshman year in college. I was looking for a job and my mom worked at Hughes Aircraft at the time. I said, hey, do you guys got anything, you know, sweeping floors, anything I can do? I just need to make some money, which at that time, me making money was to support my um, my party habits in college, even though I wasn't of age at the time. Um, we, so anyways, um, in that pursuit, um, I think at that time, the minimum wage was about three seventy five an hour. And I was like, I thought if I could make five dollars an hour, I'd be rich, you know, and I'd buy the beer I needed during the school year. So she said, well, let me look at it and I'll, I'll get back to you. So, um, I don't know, a week later she calls me and says, Hey, you want to be a lifeguard? I'm like, Nope. She's like, it's at the beach. Nope, definitely not. She says it pays 1083 an hour. I said, send me the application. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great job. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is perfect. I think that is perfect for me, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it, it was, and that's kind of what led my, um, foray into, you know, Uh, first responder public service not that i still had that even on my radar um and but it it started the path and so you know here i am uh you know nearly 34 years later and well i guess not still in it because i've retired but uh you know i did 33 years 
from 18 to uh, 52. So I guess it was 34 years um, as a first responder. And it opened up so many doors and had so many great opportunities. It was fantastic. So what was your uh, major when you got the degree in the graduate? Oh, yeah. So I have a, a bachelor's degree in marketing and I have a master's in business administration and, you know, eventually fell into the fire service. And my family always liked to uh, mock me that I had an MBA and I was just a firefighter. I'm like, yeah, I'm just a firefighter. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the irony because I talk about this quite a bit. Of course, education is incredibly important. Um, but you know, and, and obviously the degree route is, is the only route for law, medicine, you know, some of these professions, but I think there are so many firefighters and police officers that have degrees that they really didn't get to use. And I went to, to London, uh, University of North London, and then finished at UF, um, in exercise physiology. And, and nice. I always tell people, I'm like, I think the only value of that whole degree really is when people look at who the hell is this guy hosting the show? Oh, he's got a degree in X Fizz. You must know what he's talking yeah. about. Yeah. I don't, but it looks good on paper. <laughs> sure, <laughs> That's the sure. most expensive piece of paper I got. So, you know, yeah. did you, were there any cross pollinations with some of the things that you learned that took some value from, from those five years? Well, um, it's a great question. I haven't really ever contemplated it. I would, I would say that, the biggest benefit to that was that having an education and having learned how to study material and really absorb it uh, made me a better firefighter initially after graduating from the academy. And then it helped me along the way as far as taking promotional exams to engineer and then to captain. Um, but I think the greatest thing was that I didn't get hired as a firefighter until I was 31 years old. And I think bringing that kind of life experience to the job was more valuable than, you know, maybe coming in as an 18 year old kid fresh out of high school. Um, just, you know, I, I, I really think that some life experience brings so much more to the, the job. Uh, if you're a first responder, I think you add so much value to your department. If you have, just some basic life experience to draw from as opposed to I graduated high school. Now I'm a firefighter and you know, I'm the shit, you know? Yeah. We do see that a little bit sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well then I myself found myself lifeguarding for several years before I entered the fire service. I always wanted to be a fireman, but uh, people listen to this. They heard it before. I was told I was colorblind. Very long story short. Didn't, didn't apply for a long time, but the, you know, lifeguarding really was a great kind of stepping stone, you know, and it was, it was a great lesson to me, I think, in prevention. Like, the, if you're a good lifeguard, you, you, you stop people drowning. If you're a good firefighter, you, you know, you bring someone back from drowning, you know what I mean? So what were, what were some of the either interesting calls or just experiences of your lifeguarding career? Uh, lifeguarding, uh, was so fantastic. I still have good friends from those days. Uh, I worked in Los, Can Los Angeles County, um, uh, for, uh, on the beaches of the ocean there and just really had no clue what I was in for. Uh, my first two summers out in Catalina Island, which, uh, you know, was a benefit to me because my first summer as a seasonal, you're on call. And there were no, it was probably one of the gloomiest summers in 1988 and everyone in my class got no work. So by the time I was done with two summers out in, in Catalina, the way they did the rating system, 
they, uh, I was, I had tons of seniority, but even going back to those Catalina days, I had a good friend, um, Mike, or he became a good friend, Mike. We were kind of, I don't know, in the oddest sense, kind of rivals back in the day, I guess, you know, like who's, you know, it's kind of the swinging Johnson kind of competition. Right. And, uh, he had swam at a junior college and I had swam at Cal State Bakersfield and, you know, I'd, you know, not kept in shape during that summer. And so he couldn't believe that I was as fast as I said I was. So one day we decided to go out in the uh, bay and have a little swim. And so, um, we got out there and of course everyone knew even the Harbor patrol and everyone was paying attention, you know, watching in with the, their binos and everything. And I just, I just played him a little bit, you know, we, we swam down from what was middle beach down to the North beach and, and then back. And so basically what I did was I just stayed just enough ahead of him on the way down to make him work his ass off, you know? And then we got to the other end, he's breathing heavy and I, and I thought, okay, you know, are you ready to go back? He's like, yeah. And then like took off right away and just buried him on the way back and just like, <laughs> yeah, I told you, I mean, you know, it wasn't, I was never one to, um, really even talk about myself, but when the topic came up and I told him my times, it wasn't that I was boasting or lying about anything. I just, you know, when, when cornered, you, you tell the truth, right? So I remember, and then, you know, in the fire Academy, kind of the same thing was we were, there was another guy in my Academy who was a swimmer and we were talking one day and we were comparing times and he's, he's like, yeah, my fastest time was this. And I'm like, Oh yeah, cool. Mine was, you know, this is a little bit slower than his. And he's like, oh, okay. And it took him a minute. He goes, wait a minute. You're not talking freestyle, are you? You're talking backstroke. And I'm like, yeah, guilty. I, I, I didn't want to make you feel bad. Though, you know? <laughs> um, I did. I, and then my lifeguard career, uh, I spent most of my summers in Manhattan Beach. And a couple of my good friends there in um, Manhattan, uh, I was in a section called Marine Street. And so they started calling me the mayor of Marine Street because I'd spent so much time there. I was a senior guard. I was opening every day. And we just we had a blast. And uh, I, I, I kind of got tired of Manhattan. You know, it was, it was uh, there were days where, you know, the moms there would bring their kids down. Of course, they knew more about my job than I did. And it just kind of got frustrating. And I kind of needed a change. So for two summers, I transferred up to Venice Beach and, oh my God, there wasn't a day that I didn't laugh my ass off at work in Venice Beach because just the sheer madness of everything going on there was was great. I told this story recently to a friend. I was the early morning guard. I was opening up in the, what's known as the avenues in Venice Beach and this scuba instructor comes down with his um, student and it's probably pumping 10 foot in this little cove and uh, known as the avenues in, in uh, Venice beach. And I pulled up and I go, Hey, sir, I, I, I don't know if this is a good idea. I mean, you could easily even just have a air embolism if you breathe at the wrong time, trying to get out in the surf. And he goes, Oh, I'm a, I'm a pro. I've, I've been teaching for, I don't know how, whatever significant number of years made him feel like he was qualified. I'm like, well, sir, I, I mean, I can't stop you. I just don't think it's a good idea. Um, and he's like, well, we're going to go because I need to get this guy signed off or whatever. Uh, I don't remember exactly what he said. So then I just parked the truck there and I sat there and watched them try to make their way out in the surf. And 
Of course, both of them get knocked over, and now they're rolling up and down the berm as each wave washes them up and down. And I just sat there and watched them. The guy finally gains his footing and his student. They come up to me. He's like, didn't you see us struggling? I go, yeah, I saw you struggling. He goes, why didn't you help us? I go, you're the professional, not me. You told me you could handle it, you know? And, and so it was just, there were, there were always little stories like that. Um, there was one time in the, I was working in the avenues in Redondo Beach, and it was uh, early spring, and it was late afternoon, and the sun was glaring off the water, so the visibility was down. And um, all of a sudden, I, I noticed that the guards in the tower next to me were hitting the water, so I was kind of paying attention, looking that way to see if I could figure out what was going on, but with the, the glare, I couldn't really see. I saw our lieutenant barreling out of the back station with his chest forward, just like barreling out, trying to, you know, make as much, get as much speed as he could. And and I thought, well, shit, if he's hitting the water, I better get down there. So we get down there and uh, we all, we all end up hitting the water. At the end of the day, I think we ended up pulling out about 20 to 25 people uh, out of a rip that had popped up. It was a steep berm there in Redondo beach. And what had happened was some of the kids were down below the berm, playing in the sand, a surge wave came up, swallowed them, sucked them out into the rip, and they were gone. So the whole family hits the water to save these kids. And then we just went out. And, of course, you're swimming out there, and you can't see anything. All you can hear is people screaming, crying for help, and you're just picking as many as you could. When it was all said and done, the four of us stood there on the berm going, well, did we get them all? I'm like, I don't know. We'll find out soon enough if they report someone missing or whatever. But it was uh, – that was one of the most uh, dynamic rescues uh, we had, you know, basically swimming blind, just following the, the screams and trying to find the uh, victims in the uh, water. And um, near as we could tell, no one was ever missing. So we were able to get them all. Now, when I think of, uh, you know, lifeguarding in California, obviously a lot of people's minds go to Baywatch. And yeah. you know, I guarded in you know, upstate New York and, you know, kind of beginning end of the summer, it was freaking freezing there. I guarded in England in the swimming ponds, basically. And, you know, one of the, I think it was the early, early seasons, we had to do a swim test and it was like 48 degrees in, in that oh, water. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Brutal, brutal. But brutal. I do remember when I moved to Huntington Beach, I think it was Burbank originally, but we went to one of the beaches. And about running in like I would have, of you know, thinking it was warm and going, holy shit, it's freezing. Yeah. And then, yeah. well, wait a second, Hasselhoff just yeah. flies in here without even thinking about right. it. So did you yeah. get any any of those kind of like um, kind of impressions of, of you can tell people from television think it's this tropical ocean. And then when they hit it, like, holy shit, my nuts just shrunk up into my abdomen. You know, it, it wasn't so much that. I think the Baywatch effect was most noticeable when I was in Venice. So uh, Venice is uh, a very popular tourist attraction. So a lot of foreigners on the beach there. And my summers there when I was lifeguarding, if I just so much as walked out on the, the deck of my tower, it seemed like the whole beach stopped and turned and looked at me to see what I was doing. I'm like, I'm just washing my windows, you know, because, you know, getting a little salty. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, the Baywatch effect was, was interesting because those were the days that, uh, in its, in its heyday, those were the days I was, uh, lifeguarding a lot. And it, uh, interesting side note was at some point I ended up, uh, twice a week doing a surf ski workout with uh, a couple guys, including Greg Bonin, who created, uh, Baywatch. And so 
Um, but that by that point, the the show had ended and was no longer on. Um, so I never got my my five minutes of glory to be on Baywatch. But I'm not I'm not uh, complaining about that. So, <laughs> well, I like the the film they did on it recently was bloody hilarious. Oh, with uh, The Rock? Yeah, and Zac Efron. Yeah. I, 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 I thought it was funny. Uh, you know, of course, um, all of my lifeguard buddies were offended by it. And I thought, you know, sometimes you just kind of have to check your ego at the door and enjoy the entertainment value of something, you know? Yeah, I mean, we we have Chuck and Larry, so everyone can just calm right, down. Yeah. Every pressure yeah, has yeah. that movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, I talk about it, too, is, is uh, every firefighter wants to complain about every fire movie because it's not true when they go on a fire scene. Uh, because you can see and it's not darkened down. I'm like, well, think about the the person who's watching this movie. They don't want to watch or listen to you breathe on your SCBA for five minutes in pitch darkness. That, that doesn't sell to the audience. Ignoring you know? radio so, traffic because you can't understand yeah. each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> repeat, repeat. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's funny. It, you know, I I uh, I take it all with a grain of salt. You know, I I, I can still enjoy a movie uh, without the um, it being, I guess, true to the the profession, you know, and, and I'm sure I've talked to friends that are cops. They said, you know, these cop shows are the same way. They're just not realistic. But, you know, if it, if it takes you away for an hour and, and frees your mind of some things, you know, what's what's the harm? Absolutely. No yeah. harm, no foul. Well, just exactly. before we go into the fire service, you know, obviously we're going to talk about trauma. Were there any calls as a lifeguard that you carried into the fire service with you? You know, it was it was mostly just uh, rescues. Um, there was no real uh, traumatic calls, uh, in so much as um, the lifeguard service. I mean, there were some hairy rescues, and and you know, of course, we made all the rescues. So I was knock on wood fortunate to never be involved in a drowning. Um, and then it opened up doors. You know, I, I I got a chance to do an exchange and go over to Australia and lifeguard uh, in Australia for six weeks during our California summer there or our California winter their summer and made some fantastic friends over there and uh, still in touch with them today. Uh, and the, the best part of that was um, each station had what was called a shark bag, you know, for those traumatic injuries. And you're just thinking, man, I hope I never have to break this thing out. <laughs> now, what, what, apart from that, what were some of the differences? Cause like one of my closest friends was a lifeguard in South Africa um, and he was doing like, you know, helicopter rescues or kinds of stuff over there. And then he worked in, I think it was Huntington for most of his career before he became a firefighter here. Um, you know, what, what did you notice as far as training, fitness standards, anything that was different, either better or worse on each side? Yeah. You know, they had their, their fitness standards and we had to, of course, prove ourselves for that. But they also knew that we came highly qualified from LA County. So the, the, what happened was the city of Melbourne had had a rash of drownings and they were short staffed. And so they reached out to LA County for anyone that was interested to come over. So a, a group of, I don't know, 10, 15 of us went over to Australia to help out. Thought it'd be a cool opportunity. Um, the biggest, one of the biggest things is the Australians are big on board rescues. So whereas, uh, in LA, we were, and even in California, we're all about just swimming out, get, grabbing them quick and getting them back in. And I was, uh, my good friend, a good friend of mine named Joe Ambrosi, she is a, now a firefighter in Australia, but we were working the beach one day in um, a beach called Fairhaven. 
and she, we were having this debate that morning about board rescues versus swimming rescues and all this. And of course, you know, the, the value of board rescue is it helps create that separation, you know, so, you know, like when you're talking about swift water rescue, you know, the, the last thing is to go and actually make physical contact. So with the board, you have that degree of separation. Um, but I, I was arguing or arguing with her or debating with her that, you know, swimming is faster. So sure enough, later that day, we end up with a rescue and she grabs the board and takes off. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to take off too. So I ran out, swam out, grabbed and brought him in before she ever got there. I'm like, I told you, <laughs> swimming's faster. May not be, you know, the, the best thing. I mean, you, I've definitely had to fight off some uh, victims in the water in the past, but you know, in that instance, I mean, I think the, I don't, I don't even think I swam on that rescue. I think it was waste chest deep water small kid basically all he had to do is grab his arm and tell him to stand up and he was fine um but uh i would say that's a major difference uh with australia and, and california is they, they want to use their their rescue boats their little irbs inflatable rescue boats or their paddle boards more than actually swim or make the rescue swimming so Right, well, while we're about to talk to excuse me, talk about your journey into the fire service one thing that's blown me away is the lack of annual fitness standards in the fire service. Mm. And ironically, one of the professional, I never even thought about this, but the profession I used to be in, we were held to a standard. And then I never, mm -hmm. I never guarded beaches. I guarded open water. I guarded pools and water parks. Um, but then I get, you know, some of these Hawaii lifeguards on the show and they're like, yeah, we, of course we have a fitness standard as sure. do special operations, as do pretty much everyone else. So, was that surprising to you that once you made it, got into the fire service that you weren't held to the standard like you were as a firefighter, excuse me, as a lifeguard? Yeah. So we're an anomaly actually, James, uh, here in Kern County. When I came here, there was a fitness standard and still is. And I spent 14 years as the union president. I even expanded on that fitness standard by adding a uh, say a, a fitness bonus to the salary structure to incentivize guys to, and gals. I say guys, cause you know, Kern County right now, I think we have one female in our whole department. Really? So, yeah. So it's, it's, I, I, it, when you think about it, it's just so common because you don't see the females to just uh, go back to guys. And I know that's not uh, genuine and there is, uh, I think one girl in the Academy now, but anyways, uh, so we had the fitness standard and the funny part to me was even from the very beginning of my, um, career, your physical that you have to do a metabolic, uh, test, stress test and have hit a certain, uh, number, uh, met score. And so as I went in, the guy was asking me like all these background questions about my history, my athletics, all that stuff and told him I was a swimmer. So then he eventually invites one of his coworkers in, they decide to bet on me on what my my Mets are going to be on this test. And, uh, and so after they're done, I just looked at the guy, I go, well, you know what? You, you failed to ask me the one question that, uh, is important to this. And he said, what's that? I said, how many do I have to get to get the job? You know, because I've heard too many stories about my, uh, lifeguard buddies who had to go get a stress test, end up throwing a, a random heartbeat or PVC or whatever. And then that now they're going into, um, additional testing and all that. And my goal was to get the job, not to find out if I had a heart issue. So, uh, so, so 
as soon as I hit my Met score, I'm like, okay, I'm done, I'm stepping off. And he, like, I was so bummed because he bet higher on me. And and I don't know, what the, I don't know if it was a true bet or if it was just lunch or just a kind of a friendly, like, hey, what do you think type of thing. But uh, so we've had that Met test ongoing. Um, had a great uh, county supervisor who uh, was a triathlete and really wanted his firefighters and his uh, sheriff's deputies to be fit. And so we kind of led the charge working together to put implement this um, structure for um, pay increases. So um, it was 2% and 4% additional depending on what MET score you got. And the initial effect, man, you should have seen the number of guys all of a sudden working out and losing weight and getting ready and, and all that stuff. Because, you know, it, if you got 10, you got to stay on the floor. If you got 11, you got 2%. If you got 12 Mets, you got 4%. So all these guys are all of a sudden going, I'm, I'm going for that extra two. You know, I want that 4%. And so it had the effect that we wanted. And then the foresight of our of the union leaders before me to actually put that in place to have an annual or biannual biannual physical every two years to create that baseline. So it was a full exam, you know, from, you know, your um, lung capacity to hearing to, every, you know, the stress test. And really what it did was create a baseline for your overall health. So now 20 years later, 25 years later, 30 years, whatever it may be, you end up with a hearing issue you've got the track record for it because you've tested every other year for all those years. And the decline has been measurable and seen through all this stuff. So it makes it a lot harder for the County or the agency to deny that, you know, the job actually had that impact. Beautiful. Well, I love that. And first is I'm so glad that I was, you know, asking that question slightly wrong because you have that in place. And like you said, there's an anomaly, but that should be, you know, the tip of the spear as it were, it should be you guys leading. Um, and you said about 10, you get to stay on the floor. So there was a, not so much a punitive, but there was a standard set as far as being an operational firefighter. Right. So if you were, I think if you were, if you're below 10, I can't remember if it was nine or eight, you were put into um, basically a, a light duty situation. Or I think if at nine, you were coached. Uh, you got a like a mentor, uh, a fitness mentor who helped you train and get fit for to get back up to 10. And then you were tested again in 30 days and you had to show some improvement to go back to the floor. At eight, you had to um, you were put on a light duty assignment, had to get your fitness back in order and then get to 10 before they'd let you go back to the, the floor. Yeah, and see, and that's that's what's so great. If that's held right from the front door, if that's a standard, always, then there's none of this. Oh, you're trying to take our jobs that, that you hear so often. But then you you parallel, for example, lifeguarding. It's like, well, you know, would you want a 300 pound dude to be responsible for your child when they're caught in a riptide? Of course not. And it's no different with us. And of course, there's a responsibility of the department to create an environment for us to be able to stay healthy. But the ownership side is equally as important. Absolutely. Yeah, it takes two to tango for sure. And to implement those types of programs uh, is huge. And I, I, you know, having listened to the show several times, I know you advocate for this all the time, is do you want the guy next to you saving your family? And I can honestly say there were guys I worked with that thought, I don't know that you could, if we're interior, I don't know if you could save me. 
you know, I'm not a small guy either. So it's like, you really going to um, drag a 250 pound guy with all of his gear on to put me, you know, put all my gear on. I'm over 300 pounds. You really, uh, do I really think you have the strength to drag me out? No, I don't, you know? So, you know, it, it's, it's the peace of mind of, can that person save your family? But more importantly, when you're interior on a structure fire, can that person save you? You know, cause you don't know what's going to fall or, and who it's going to hit or anything like that. You know, uh, you know, you might step through a, a, a floor and fall into a basement. So, you know, you want the guys that, you know, can, you know, handle the, uh, physicality of, of that, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's something that I talked about, you know, a fair bit and I made some posts about, I'm only 170 pounds and I was training one day with a 400 pound sled doing drags. Oh yeah. Not to, for Insta fame or anything, but just to kind of prove a point. And my, my, um, comment was, I can pull my heaviest firefighter out of a building. The question is, can he pull me out of a building? Yeah, and it's a very sobering thought. You know, if you're if 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 you're going to be a liability to your crew, if you're going to be unable to pull out one of your brothers or sisters out of a fire, and or obviously someone that we're going to search, that that should be a very sobering thought, and maybe maybe create a day one mentality that this is where I begin taking care of my health again. Absolutely, absolutely. I. I uh... Even in my last assignments on the floor, we would go to the gym and, and you know, we go to the Globo gym and, you know, for me, it was kind of like, okay, well, I'll, I'll fart around, do something. I'll go over the squat rack um, type of thing. But when I saw my crew over there doing, you know, bench press or incline uh, bench because, you know, they're trying to build up their chest and their biceps uh, type of thing, I'd go over there and I'm like, oh, what are we doing? I'm like, oh, we're doing sets of 10. I'm like, okay, cool, you know get on the bench and knock out 12 or 15 reps and put it back. I'm like, okay, so we going up now more weight or what? You know? And, and so, you know, guys in their thirties, I'm 20 years older than some of these guys and I'm pumping out more than they are. And, and I don't train the same way I was uh, active in CrossFit at the time and, and had really built up my, my strength. So it was kind of fun to me to kind of show them like, Hey, you know, I can do it. You probably should too, you know, not necessarily CrossFit, but really take your health, uh, as a as a component of doing this job absolutely well speaking of the job so you were lifeguarding walk me through the decision or even the discovery of the fire service and then what your entry was like yeah so uh, i was actually pursuing full-time employment with los angeles county and i was just waiting for them to give their next test for promotion and in the interim had kind of stumbled across some friends that were lifeguards on their days off, but firefighters full time and started kind of wondering aloud about it. And they kind of gave me some guidance. I started taking some fire tests again, had no background, no training, never took a fire class, never took a fire Academy, nothing. So, um, so I was limited to, you know, the bigger departments that really only required you to be 18 and have your GED and a pulse. Uh, so I started taking some tests and I'd swam here in Bakersfield. Kern County came up, so I thought, well, I'll go take that test. Um, LA County had their lifeguard test. I passed, and then in the in in kind of the discovery phase of the scoring, I just, I realized that they had lowballed me on a score uh, purposely, so I wouldn't be in the top band by myself. Um, and so I ended up in the second band with two other guys, and that kind of left me a little raw when I figured that out. Um, and so I 
had taken the Kern County test and really it was coming down to um, the point where the job offers were both going to come up about the same time. And I was really debating back and forth, back and forth. And I, I didn't know what to do. Um, I wasn't sure which direction I was going to go, depending on the time of day, uh, the type of day I was having. It was I was going lifeguard, I was going fire, back and forth. And I was sitting at the uh, Navy Street Tower in Santa Monica. And my friend Jim Lowe was on a workout and he was running by and he stopped and he's like, hey, so what are you going to do? I'm like, Jim, right now, I'm going to stay. But by the time you run by, the next time it might change. He says, well, you know, let me just give you my input. I go, yeah, absolutely. He says, if I, he goes, I had a chance to go to LA County Fire and if I could rewind and do it all over, I would have left and gone to the fire department. And I thought, cool, awesome, thanks. And right then I'm like, yep, go and fire. Because the beauty of going to fire, especially with Kern County, was on my days off, I was still living in L.A., so I was lifeguarding on my days off. Yeah, and I was living the dream, you know. I mean, you know, firefighter, lifeguard, you know, I mean, kind of hero personified as my buddy and I used to joke about, you know, we used to talk about having a uh, kind of a, a, a retirement party since we had both jobs in hand and dressing up in the uh, the um, old man kind of uh, oak overalls or whatever, you know, the zip up. And, and, uh, so definitely, um, good to be in that position and, and have that be able to make that choice. And, uh, I, I look back at it and I don't regret the choice at all. The thing for me was as I'd go back to the beach, a lot of my friends would be like, Oh, what's the, what's the difference? What's the difference? I said, well, the difference is out here on the beach, you have to be proactive. In the fire service, you're reactive. It's already happened. You're just going to help. And if it's a slow day, you can pick up a book and, and study and read something, or you got tons of tools and equipment you could play with. Here, you have to stay actively engaged and, and watching the whole time. I said, so, yeah, it's nice. It's it's different, and uh, it's a little bit, I mean, what I thought was uh, less stress, but, you know, um, you know, the preventative work versus the uh, reactive work was the big difference. Yeah. Well, I've talked about this before on here. Like I knew it was bad when I would stand, you know, by a body of water, just praying someone would drown so I could do something. <laughs> so when I find myself in the fire service, I'm like, this is awesome. I can just get on with doing whatever. And they'll say, hey, you have a call and then you off you go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, uh, see, like you, uh, unlike you, we were you know, with the ocean and, and it being dynamic and everything, it was a, kind of a different mindset. I sat there every day stressing out, hoping I didn't miss something and I didn't want someone to drown, you know? Um, and, and it's funny too, because I look back on it now and I just realized how calloused I was, you know, kind of in that suck it up uh, kind of mentality, even in my lifeguard days. I think it was the early part of my um, fire days as well. I was working um, I, I was part of the training team that retrained all the uh, lifeguards for recertification for the next summer, which included CPR, first aid, backboarding, um, physical tests, whether there was a swim and, and all that. And I remember there was a drowning and I was right there in Marine Street, Manhattan. And uh, I remember hearing the outfall of that was they pulled all the lifeguards. Actually, I wasn't working that day. I heard the story later. So they took everyone out of that that recertification course and created a human chain and they started sweeping, trying to find the body. 
And I just remember hearing stories about how, how it messed with everyone mentally. Like maybe they hit a piece of seaweed, thought it was a body, freaked out. And they, had a, they never found the body. And afterwards, they had a debriefing and people were crying. And I just, I just remember thinking, like, suck it up. You know, now I look back on it and I'm like, what an asshole I was. You know, like how, how ignorant I was back then compared to, you know, having now lived it and survived it. You know, it, it's, it's – funny how life works yeah we had a kid go missing on the summer camp i worked at um and did you know when we trained diligently so we did the grid pattern just like we trained the same thing as much as you wanted to find the kid you didn't want to find the kid you know what i mean absolutely Um, absolutely and then it ended up being we had the buddy system and the kid had just forgotten to take his tag off and they found him (laughs) fucking somewhere up in the camp um which you know you're angry but you're also over the moon but yeah i mean there is that kind of you know, trauma. And even in my last, one of my last departments, we had, um, you know, a boat on the, on the, on the lake there. And it's the same kind of thing. You know, occasionally we, we'd go in and, you know, be worried about finding something down there that we shouldn't. Sure. Yeah. So I can relate. So, so speaking of that, um, we'll get to your very first fatal fire that you wrote about in the book. But prior to that, kind of what was the academy like? And, and do you remember any mindset as far as that kind of suck it up buttercup, uh, mentality? I don't remember it specifically. I just, it was kind of a persona, I guess. Um, and for me, the academy experience was kind of just trying to absorb everything I could. Like I said, I had no background in fire. I mean, I really didn't even know what the difference between a truck and an engine was. So I was just trying to absorb as much as I could. Um, I, I prepped for it. I mean, I was running probably three, four times a, a week, I was running three, four miles soft sand on the beach in preparation for it because I knew I wasn't a runner. I figured it's going to be part of our PT and, and everything. And so I really, I mean, and, and what I did was, um, the, I talked to all my firefighter friends uh, about how to succeed. Their biggest advice that I kept getting was don't be first, don't be last. Uh, all right, cool. So that's what I did. And every, every morning as class started, I, I wrote KYMS at the top of every sheet of paper. Keep your mouth shut. You know, and I would ask my questions of my classmates on breaks like, hey, okay, so what is a truck? What is an engine? Right. But the end result was I was more physically prepared than anyone else in the academy. We did a, you know, walk around test on a bottle of air. I outlasted everyone. Of course, that's, you know, my swimming background, my comfort with um, wearing a mask from, being a scuba diver, certified scuba diver and all that. Uh, physically, every morning we had a PT instructor and they kept telling us how hard the PT was and how hard she was and, and all this stuff. And I just kept thinking, okay, so like when does this get hard? Because I'd prepped myself so well for it that every day after class, I went over to the pool and swam because it felt like I didn't get a good enough workout. And I also want, it was a good opportunity to clear my head before I sat down and studied. Um, I, um, I also eliminated as many kind of distractions as possible. So every weekend I would take my boots over to the car wash and have them shined. So at morning inspection, I'd wear those boots. As soon as we were done with inspection, I'd switch boots and save those for the next day. So I really was, uh, just focused on making it through and being successful. And, um, yeah, I think at the end of the day, I, I came out second in my academy, but nobody even knows that, um, which I'm fine with. Um, I got the job, which was the ultimate goal. And then I remember 
at one point I worked for a chief um, who was my background investigator. And he says, well, you know, I wasn't really sure about you. You were either going to be really good or really bad. <laughs> and I thought, well, I hope it's the former, not the latter. But at that point, I had been uh, union president for a while and had negotiated uh, one of the best contracts we'd gotten in years. So it was, uh, I'm guessing it was the, that I turned out really well. Uh, but I don't remember anything about the kind of suck it up mentality. I think it was just more of a kind of like one of those unwritten rules of uh, baseball type of thing. You know, you just, you didn't talk about any of, any of it, you know, uh, and that kind of seeps into everything, you know, you just learn like, oh, we're not going to talk about this, you know, and, you know, that's, again, part of the problem. Absolutely. Well, I know you got a pretty um, rough intro to the fire service with a <laughs> fatal fire very, very early on. So I don't know if you want to want to kind of talk about that. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I wrote this chapter in the book uh, and this was the, this was the first one that really kind of, uh, I think, haunted me, but I didn't know it until years later. So we ended up we were out working out um, in the morning trying to beat the heat of the Central Valley summer. And as we were leaving the park, we saw a black column and it's like, oh, shit, we got a fire. So we pulled over jumped in our turnout gear and hauled ass over there. Our captain called it in and um, we get there. And I mean, it, it, some of it was just so beautifully perfect. It was right on the corner. We parked right on the corner. There was a hydrant right there. So we never had a water supply issue. Before I could even get out of the cab, the locals had already grabbed my hose line, were taken off towards the back of the structure. And I had to jump out and chase him down and steal my, my nozzle from him. So I continue on to the back and again, this is back in the day where we were fighting fire from the unburned to the burn. The burn was at the front of the house. Uh, so I, I went to the back and I, I was fighting fire from the back. And again, our department was kind of behind the times. This was 2001. So as a firefighter, I still didn't even have my own radio. So I had no communications. I'm just back there by myself. I'm expecting help. I'm expecting someone to come back and, and you know, back me up on the line and, and all that. Never happens. I start getting emboldened, you know, thinking, oh, you know, I'm a big, strong guy. I can handle this. You know, so I, I'm at the back door, which is the kitchen of the of the house. I start to step inside thinking I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. Well, about that time is when I realized they're fighting from the front and we're crossing streams. So they're they're shooting towards me. I'm shooting towards them. And I thought, oh, well, you know, whatever. We got to we got to put this thing out. Um, so I take a more, couple more steps in and then this fire had been rolling through the attic. And so about that point when I got you know a little bit braver and made a few more steps in, some of the ceilings started dropping in on me and bouncing off my helmet. I thought, oh, shit, I'm back here by myself. I better, I better back out a little bit and um, play it safe. So I continued to work until the uh, my bottle uh, alarm started going off. So I set my nozzle down walked out to the front, realized that we had tons of equipment out there and I was still back there fighting fire by myself, you know, just exactly the way I was trained. So I, uh, I, I checked in with my captain. I got assigned to uh, rehab and uh, sat there. The fire was pretty much out at that point. And the, the fire, and this is where, you know, if this were a movie setting, a clear scene would be absolutely true to point because there was no smoke. It burned so hot and gotten into the attic so fast that the interior of the structure was actually clear. I could actually see out the front windows and see that, you know, there were guys out there 
shooting a hose stream in towards me. Um, so anyways, the fire had been extinguished at that point. I'm in rehab, um, you know, drink my water, get my vitals checked, get a fresh bottle, get assigned to uh, search for the victims. So there's a couple of victims missing. Uh, and, and that's also when I started catching up on everything. Cause I mean, I got there and I just went to work. I didn't know what was going on. Well, um, uh, the grandfather had already been transported from the scene from, for smoke inhalation. There was another ambulance on scene because there were some missing children. And then there's also the potential for us to, you know, succumb to, um, fighting fire and, um, which would normally be a hundred degrees, but the, uh, I looked it up. <laughs> it was only like 88 degree high that day. And, and, uh, that comes from my brother who edited the book and really challenged me to have all the details that I could. So anyways, get assigned to go back in and search for the kids. Cause no one's found these kids yet. So we go back in, we're searching all over, can't find them. My, my search mate, uh, ends up somehow, um, inhaling some smoke, even though we were on full SCBAs, uh, vacates the building, leaves me in there. And I'm, my mindset is like, well, you know, the fire's out. I'm not quitting. I'm going to find these kids, uh, type of thing. And, uh, unsuccessful, burn out my bottle, come out and, um, you know, in rehab again, as we're sitting there and they finally find the kids on the front porch buried under the rubble that we'd been stepping on and through the whole time. Uh, the story is that the parents and grandparents took turns watching the kids. So the parents worked during the day, slept at night. The grandparents slept or worked at night, slept during the day. And so they had enclosed this little porch with a, a gate to lock the kids in so they could still have some access to the outside, but not be stuck inside the whole time. That's also where they stored the gas cans for the lawnmower. Well, the oldest boy had been playing with matches and obviously one of the gas cans exploded, turned into a super fast fire, super hot, super um, um, fast spreading and went right into the attic. And so that's why we didn't see a lot of smoke interior was because it was, it was so, it was, it flashed and was so hot so fast that it didn't have time for necessarily the contents inside to burn, but it burned the, unfortunately it burned the kids right there on the porch because they were trapped in there because that gate was locked and they didn't have, I, I mean, imagine just the way it exploded. The kids, uh, you know, never had the opportunity to get back inside. Um, so anyways, they, uh, they ended up that, uh, the kids were found underneath all the rubble from the front porch, um, ceiling and everything that had been, that had fallen down from the, the burn. And I just remember, uh, once one of them was covered, I was sitting there in rehab and I just remember seeing this lifeless, body burned child um um yeah I, I just remember being carried out and looking like you know uh, i don't i would probably dating myself but raggedy and tall you know arms just kind of hanging arms and and legs just kind of hanging down uh flopped out down and and just i mean unrecognizable but i mean enough so that you knew that was one of the children you were looking for and you just, I mean, 
didn't think twice about it, but you know, it like that image is still seared in my brain. And, um, you know, it just, you know, it, it was, it's kind of like what you're talking about, you know, when you find that kid, it's not that you wanted to find the kid, you wanted the closure for yourself and for the family, you know? And so I think for, for me and for us, you know, finding those kids kind of provided some closure, not necessarily the closure we wanted, but, you know, it kind of, it kind of finished up the scene for us, you know, and then, you know, of course, devastated the family in the process. So, well, you talked as well, just to add insult to injury, that you got called in on a, a difficulty breathing call. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that day, I was actually not with my normal crew. Uh, so by the time my captain came back on duty, our next shift, he, we went back and did kind of an after-action review at, on scene, told him what I did. And, of course, I was reaffirmed that everything I did was right. And, uh, of course, as a brand-new firefighter, that's you know definitely what you want to hear. Um, and then sometime that night, it was, it was after dark and, uh, we had called for difficulty breathing at the local Catholic church. As we're walking up, someone guides us to the side of the church. It's going to let us in a side door right close to the front. We walk in the, we walk in that side door. And I mean, we're, as we walk in the door straight ahead of me is three caskets. And to my left is the pew with our patient. And I just, I, I saw one adult casket and two child, child caskets. I immediately knew what, where I was. And I, that's the first time I ever froze. Like I stopped. My engineer had to grab my medical bag from me, go over and start treating the patient. I again kind of gathered my thoughts, walked over there and um, was able to, you know, do my job, you know, take the basics, you know, um, vitals, all that stuff, get history and then hand them off to the ambulance. And I mean, I, I just remember the whole time I was treating that patient, I just felt like I was all eyes were on me because I was the firefighter that was on that call because those that was the grandfather who had been transported before I realized and the two children that had all passed from that fire. And, I, you know, I'm sitting there going, do they know it's me? You know, do they know it's me? I'm like, I felt like every eye was looking at me and they were recognizing me. And I just like, let's get out of here. Like, where's the ambulance? Where's our transport? I need to get the F out of here because this is not cool. And of course, you know, looking back on that, all that stuff should have been triggers. It should have been like wake up calls. Like, hey, man, you need to deal with this call because it's not it's obviously impacting you. Like you walked in on a call and you stopped cold. You know, that should have been the, one of the first indicators that, you know. Maybe I need to learn how to deal with this stuff. Maybe I need to talk to someone and that's okay. Uh, but yeah, that was, and then I walked out and I told my captain, I go, Hey cap, I'm sorry that, that that's the family from that fire. And he's like, no kidding. I go, yeah. Are you sure? I'm like, unless another adult and two uh, children have passed in the last couple of days. And yeah, I'm 99% sure that's them. And so, um, but then again, you know, he hadn't been trained in any of this stuff to recognize anything. And so, you know, his thought process so wasn't to get someone out to talk to me or help me or, or guide me in any particular way. So it was really, um, and then, you know, after that, I just kind of moved on, kept going, buried it and thought it was nothing, you know, thought I'd dealt with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a horrific entry to the fire service, you know, and especially as you were saying, even being fortunate as a lifeguard to not really experience that much trauma prior, but, you know, 
predominantly by doing a job well. Um, and then to come to this reactive profession where none of it makes any fucking sense. Right. You know, the, yeah. the person in the crumpled up car, I just posted one the other day, got ran over by a semi and she, once they craned up the truck, she walked out the car. And I've had ones where the car looks unscathed and the person inside is dead. There is no rhyme or reason to it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's crazy. Yeah. And so, and to identify that though, you know, and see that that far back, I mean, you're absolutely right. There was no, I, I never got any, any sort of discussion on any of this stuff. And even later in the book, I don't want to drag through all your horrific calls, <laughs> but you touch on another, you know, uh, traffic accident and you're yeah. talking about yeah. trying to usher the medic on off scene. And I've seen that so many times. And the way you wrote about that, I never thought about it this way that it was actually the anxiety of not having to face the parents that was probably causes a lot of people for that let's get off scene versus an actual medical you know reason because so so often now we do a better job working the code on scene not transporting you know but yeah i've seen that i've had someone grab me by one radio strap and tell me someone's basically got pseudo rigor we're taking them to the hospital and now when i look back on those because that guy didn't know how to handle looking a family member in the eye and saying i'm sorry he's gone yeah. And, 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 and in that specific call, it wasn't for him. It was for me. I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to tell the family that, um, you know, I, I mean, there's just something so searing on your brain, heart and soul when you hear just the empty wail of a parent who just lost a child and you can't describe that. It is so just, I mean, it just goes right through you and you just, I mean, I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you, um, you know, I, I just don't know. I mean, even the most empathetic person, compassionate person, it's going to sear them in ways that you can't describe. I mean, it is a gut-wrenching experience. And some of those sounds live on in my mind today. You know, I mean, even after some of this stuff and after getting help, I remember running a call on um, probably a 20 to 25-year-old male and the family was upset and, and all that. And we were outside just waiting for the corner after we'd pronounced him. The father comes home and from outside, I could hear his just empty wailing, his empty cries for, you know, pleading for his son not to be dead. And, and even to this day, like that, just kind of mentioning that kind of gives me a chill down my spine that like, I, I'll never unhear that. I can relate completely. I had a guy who was in his 20s, was about to go to a theme park, was on, on a vacation from who knows where, was dropping his dog off at a kennel and then just dropped right there. And we worked him. And I got to say, hand on heart, that code went as well as any code I've ever worked in my whole entire life. So we gave him every single chance. But, you know, it was a, a you know, aneurysm ultimately. So there was nothing we could do. But when I'd offloaded the patient, given the report and came to, to write up my report at the time where, where we would sit to report right was right around the corner from where they would do the death notifications. So I am literally 12 feet from these people that are mourning the loss and I was the medic that ran the code. And even though, like I said, I know in my heart of hearts, we did everything we could, that is seared. That noise, just like you said, is seared into my fucking mind and will be till the day I die. It's, it's truly unbelievable. And I don't think uh, that anyone in the public appreciates that, uh, especially when they're 
questioning a fire department budget or the overtime or anything like that. I mean, what we subject ourselves to uh, is not normal in any way, shape or form. And, you know, I mean, I, I think I put it in the book somewhere. It's like we're expected to have normal reactions to abnormal situations. And now we are continually exposed to those situations more than any human is ever designed to see. And how could that not have an impact on you? How can that not leave marks? How can that not leave scars? And that's what we need to start recognizing. You know, I mean, I think part of the PTSI puzzle is people think that you have to have responded to, you know, a 9-11 or a Columbine to have those scars. And it's that's that's an acute trauma. There's also a cumulative trauma, which is what I cover in my book is, you know, this stuff builds up if you don't address it, if you don't tackle it head on or front, you know, it, the mind and body work together. You need to work the mind as work the mind out as much as you do the body for to be healthy and and be able to succeed in life and in this profession. Absolutely. Well, you know, something I talk about a lot is, is like, just like you said, the cumulative effect. And I agree a hundred percent. We look at just the acute events, even with, with us talking to a friend yesterday, Florida's PTSD, um, presumption laws. Now you have to have an acute event, which negates, in my opinion, probably 95% of working first responders. But so you obviously, we talked about it earlier. You brought in childhood trauma into the profession. Um, then you've got actual trauma scene. You add in sleep deprivation from the crazy shifts that we work. So when through your career did you start realizing that you yourself was starting to suffer? Uh, that's so tough. Uh, cause looking back, it's all very clear when I actually recognized it is hard. So, uh, I think there were two calls in succession. So, um, I was already kind of, um, I'd say spiraling down because I had uh, broken up with, or I hadn't, my girlfriend had broken up with me and, you know, for obvious reasons, I was in a dark place that I still didn't even recognize. Um, so I was already having issues dealing with that. I was uh, jokingly taking sick days that I called mental health days, which now I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I needed those days. Those were mental health days because I needed to deal with my shit. Uh, but it was all superficial. It wasn't uh, deep. So then there were two calls that happened kind of in succession. Um, one chapter I talk about a little boy, probably eight to 10 years old in his little baseball uniform who ended up uh, dying. And again, like you said earlier, we did absolutely everything right on that call. It just wasn't going to happen that day, unfortunately. I think that call really kind of had me on the fence, even though I didn't recognize it. I know my buddy who was the medic on that call. He's now a firefighter. He was having issues with it. We met up. I kind of supported him and tried to play the tough guy, you know, suck it up buttercup kind of mentality and told him, Hey man, we did everything right on that call, which we did. Um, told him, you know, there's no reason to cat, uh, question yourself. We, we did everything by the book protocol, everything we could. No one could question anything that happened on that call. That one definitely still lives with me. I still struggle with that one. Um, I still see vivid images in my head on that one, even though I've dealt with it in counseling and everything. That one's just one that's never going to go away. 
So that one definitely put me on the edge and definitely really kind of started the haunting. That's when things started coming back to me, like the structure fire we talked about earlier where we lost a couple of kids. I started having flashbacks to that, memories of that. And I started spiraling hard after that, um, drinking excessively to try and get to sleep, couldn't sleep. You know, mind would still wake up in the middle of the night, start led me to, you know, start questioning my, my worth and my value. Then we end up on this, uh, call the day after Thanksgiving, um, an accident on a major highway here through the central Valley. Um, and drunk driver, uh, plowed through a car where the father was trying to change the tire, change a flat tire. And, um, that one definitely sent me over the edge. Uh, I ended up on call. I ended up, we ended up the third engine on the scene. And so my role was to land the helicopter. I was in charge of the, the landing zone. Totally viable, totally, um, acceptable in that position. But all I remember is pulling up on scene and seeing the firefighters doing CPR on a child. And I just, my mind was like, I've got to get there. That's where I need to be. That's where I'm going to do the greatest good. And, uh, the IC assigned me to the landing zone. So I stood there in the middle of a major highway, holding traffic, waiting for a helicopter, uh, as traffic was going the northbound and all these people are hanging out their windows, filming, live streaming, taking pictures. I look over to, that was to my right to the left was the drunk driver and his truck that looked like just been in a fender bender, no big deal. And the driver's sitting there with this dumb look on his face, like, you know, what's going on? Can I go home yet? Type of thing. And I just remember being filled with so much anger and so much rage. I wanted to go over there and pummel that guy. And I just, I was so mad um, at that individual because the end result was the mother and one of the children died in that accident. The father and another child left or lived. And even before we left that call, our chief was like, Hey, let's pull out the tick and, and scan the car to see if there's any other bodies crumpled up in there. And I just thought, you know, and it, even that kind of lives with me. Like we had to go so far as to scan the car with a, a thermal imaging camera to make sure that nobody else was crumpled up in there. And that one just definitely sent me over the edge. The drinking increased. Um, my doctors gave me some, um, sleeping pills so I, I took those uh, one night, shared with my ex-girlfriend. She pleaded with me not to take them because a local city council member had been taking sleeping pills to um, sleep and was attributable to his subsequent suicide. And so she was worried about me. And, and so um, my feelings for her were still strong. So I committed to that. I threw the pills away, but I just kept I just just meant I drank more to kill the pain and try to get to a point where I could pass out at night. None of it ever worked. I kept waking up and, and having these uh, nightmares, these dances with my mit mistress who was in my head, you know, um, convincing me that my life wasn't worth living, um, making me question my own worth. And I really, my mind was broken for sure. And I really found myself in a place where as painful as it is, I was convinced that I was a burden to everyone in my life 
and that ending my life was going to make everything better, including including my son, which, sorry, it hurts. But it's real, man. I was there, and even just thinking about it brings tears to my eyes because my son is my greatest gift in life, and to think that I almost deprived him of everything that I craved from my own father it breaks me but it also inspires me to keep going and be the best man I can be and and really launch me into uh, this post-traumatic growth that I'm on and I continue to be on and I just really want to be the best version of myself today and then I want to be better tomorrow and better the next day not just for him, but for me as well, because I don't want to go back there. Sorry. Well, mate, don't apologize. I mean, firstly, thank you for sharing. I mean, it's this raw emotion that we need to hear because this is behind and you talk about the mask, you know, Lewis Howes and, and his mm-hmm. uh, mask philosophy. It's true. I think I wore the comedy mask personally, like <laughs> joking laughter. I wasn't a clown, but you know, I would laugh off things. But yeah, and behind that mask is, is this, is what you're seeing. And how can you not from, you know, what we've talked about, whether it's the early life, whether it's, you know, what you saw. And, and it's funny because you talk about that, that call. I wrote that man on the curb chapter for that very reason. Yes, you know, it's yeah. always it's always the drunk, it's always the yeah. the you know the the speed racer, the piece of shit weaving through traffic that kills the innocent people. Yeah. Yeah, and and I, you know, if I'm brutally honest, the worst manifestation I think of my mental you know, moral injury trauma whatever you want to describe it is was anger and it was when I was driving. And I swear to God, there were times where I almost got out my car and dragged someone out their fucking window (laughs) and stomped them into the curb because I'm like, do you understand what might happen if you drive like that? And, and, you know, so I can relate 100%. I've absolutely been there, my brother. I've I've had uh, rage-filled anger on the road, Um, you know, and some of it too from what we've seen. I mean, what you were talking about earlier, you can see a crumpled up car, someone walks away and in my experience, it seems to me that, you know, today we see a lot more um, people walk away from this vehicle accidents because of the safety standards of the vehicle in- industry, whether it's airbags or whatever. But it seems to me that no matter what, if someone's going to die in the accident, it's not the drunk. It's not the alcoholic. It's always the alcoholic who walks away basically injury-free and then you've got the wreckage and the damage of, you know, lives being lost on the other side. And and it to me this day, it's still just simply, it's just not fair. You know, it's it's crazy. I don't know. But then you go even reverse engineer more. How did the alcoholic become the alcoholic? There's trauma sure. again. You know, how did the Absolutely. the dude driving like complete asshole in his lifted truck? He's yeah. compensating probably for so you know yeah. what I mean. So you reverse yeah. engineer, yeah. and the root of all this, you know, comes community, tribalism, compassion, kindness, you know, and that's what what really I struggle with is, man, we'll bend over backwards for for a virus, but not a damn thing will be done about maybe raising standards on the roads. And where is it where most most responders see death every year is on the roads, and yet you can basically fill in a. You know, one page survey 
and then and then pull into a Walmart parking space and you get given a fucking driver's license in this country. Yeah, you know, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, uh, what, which is uh, a interesting point because uh, my son turns fifteen on Thursday, and so we're on the countdown to uh, all of that. You know, him getting a driver's license and and all that. Of course, I I like to joke that I'm a year away from having my own personal driver. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, I mean, we, we would need more, uh, support for law enforcement to be out there to enforce those types of rules. But then again, you know, how do you, where does it start? You know, I mean, I mean, they, they, I remember when I was in college, they, we, we went through this alcohol awareness program as part of our uh, kind of eligibility for the NCAA. And they said that alcoholism has an 80% chance of transferring, not just to the child, but to the grandchild. And so my grandfather being an alcoholic, you know, and all that trauma and everything, did that lead to me turning to the bottle regularly to kill my pain and find a way to escape it or get away from it or to numb it, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think with, you know, with, with the enforcement, it wouldn't need to be law enforcement. It would be the bar set so high to even receive the permit in the first place, you know, the, the license, you know, back True. home in England, I wrote about in the book, you know, it's, it's revered or it was when I was young. I mean, most people genuinely would take about three attempts to pass a driving test and that would be with paid driving lessons. And, you know, it was very, very, stringent and i think that's something that we can do same in the fire service with fitness and everything else when you raise the bar you end up with a with a much more positive ripple effect than if you allow someone to come in do a few maneuvers in a dmv parking lot and then give them a license to a death machine they have no understanding of the repercussions sure yeah if you have respect for the uh the the process and the accomplishment that it takes to get certified or, or get a license. Yeah, I can see that. So with, um, with your journey then, so you're, you know, doing as so many of us do, you're leaning into the bottle. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what was that journey? Did you have like a, a Dharma? Actually, before I even ask that, I want, I want to hit on something. I knew there was something that you, you touched on before that I do want to underline. So you talked about that feeling of being a burden. And that is something that comes up over and over and over again. And, you know, when, when we talk about suicide awareness, people are like, Oh, think of who you love, you know, think, think of your wife, think of your kids. And yet when I speak to these people who have almost or actually pulled the trigger, jumped off the bridge and they survived, it's that same reporting. One is obviously they want the pain, the suffering, the end. The other one is that they truly believe the brain was so miswired, they believe they were a burden to their family. So then you tell people in that miswired crisis state, think about your son, Derek. And you're like, well, I am James. And that's why I'm going to remove myself from the world. So, you know, that I think just, I mean, that's not even a question. That's just something I hear over and over and over again. So that should be known as a red flag for us. If we have these feelings of burden, if we truly believe that the people that love us are going to be better off with us, even though the reality is we leave them all their, tr their pain plus the pain of grieving us now, that should be, if not before, a trigger point for us to say, fuck, I need to go call someone now. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, and again, this is why I'm sharing my story, because I can tell you that in those dark nights, 
I was absolutely convinced that everyone in my life would be better off without me. I was a burden to everyone. And again, it's the miswiring of the brain. It's not dealing with the mental trauma that you've accumulated over years. And I, you know, even when my friend who was there before I called for help and he's like, think about Chase. I'm like, that's just not resonating with me, man. Like he would be better off without me because I'm a burden right now. I can't even take care of myself, you know? And you just, you're just in that broken state where, you know, it, I used to think that suicide was a selfish act. I've learned having lived through it and not done it. uh, But I've been in those dark moments where it is a very real and viable option. It is the most selfless act on the part of the person committing the act. Um, and I hate to say it, I, 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 I don't like to use the word or the phraseology of committing suicide because I feel like it makes it kind of an illegal uh, thing, right? It's, it's, and then the, we, we need to change kind of the phraseology to where it's something like this person chose suicide as their best option. And that rephrases it to the fact that like, wow, how did that person get there to that, to the point that that was their best option as opposed to committing what kind of feels like a illegal act by using the word commit, you know? And I, I, you know, I, so I really, in my um, advocacy, always talk about, you know, what led to this person choosing suicide as their best option and how do we eliminate that? Because, None of us should ever get there. We just need to be uh, guided or helped along the way and taught that it's okay to talk about shit that messes you up. You know, I mean, even in everyday life, there's things that can impact you. And if you don't deal with them, they're just going to burden you and and wear you down and bring you down. And and the less you deal with it, the the more your your chance of heading towards suicide increases. And, and I just, I I mean, that's why I'm here. I want to talk about it. I want to, I want to show people that it's okay to talk about it and to get help. You can get back to healthy and thriving again. Absolutely. We talked about post-traumatic growth and I think that's a concept, you know, PTSD kind of stops there, you know, and people don't understand that when, when you get past it, you see people coming out of the woodwork talking to that person who has gone through that process himself you see um you know a higher level of performance that one of my friends chad has been on here a couple times like physically he's probably better now than he's ever been mentally he runs this um thing called recovery rx um so you know i mean just he's thriving now and and as i'm sure as a firefighter he's probably better now than he ever was before but we cannot get there unless we have the courage and then also ask for the help and the tools and the support to navigate that terrifying fucking journey that we've got to go on. Absolutely. And I can honestly tell you today, James, I am the best version of myself that I've ever been. And I continue to thrive to be better. Uh, you know, I mean, I've, I, I, I had, I fell down about two weeks ago, had a bad day. And, um, I just kind of remembered what my, clinician said she said you know because uh, i uh in the day before a session you know years ago i had told her i had a bad day 
And she's like, why? I'm like, I don't know. I just had a bad day. And her comment to me was, here's what you need to remember. If you have a bad day, that's okay. Because it's like a, being on a roller coaster. You're on the low and you're about to come back up. And before you came in here, every day was like yesterday for you. So the fact that you can recognize that it's a, just a bad day and keep moving forward is positive. And so I fell down uh, about two weeks ago, had a really bad day, reached out um, to a friend and, and had a great conversation and uh, just kind of shared what was kind of messing with my head. But it's one of those things like before I got help, I would have never done that. I'd have just bottled that up and, you know, bottled it up and opened the bottle, you know? So. Well, you talked about your, your clinician. So one of the sad common denominators as well is people realizing that they need help and then starting down that road and hitting a whole bunch of road bumps. EAP yeah. comes up over and over again. And I know EAP comes from a good place. However, when politics, red tape, all that thing gets in the way, it can create a very, very inefficient system, which can actually increase the chance of someone, for example, completing suicide. So talk to me about your road once you realize that you needed help. Yeah, so that's, that's a great point. And um, it, it's a bigger picture, too. So when I finally reached out to help, reach out for help, the only place I needed to go was to our EAP. So I called our EAP and had that conversation and uh, finally admitted that, you know, not only that did I need help, but that suicidal thoughts were in my head nightly type of thing. So they committed to get me help. They got me a list of 10 clinicians that I could go see. I reached out to all 10, um, probably half of them got back to me either by uh, phone call or email saying that they couldn't see me for eight weeks and the other half never got back to me. And I just thought, what the fuck is going on here? I'm, I need help and no one wants to help me. And I just keep looking back thinking like, thank God I wasn't at the point where the gun was in my mouth because if I had to wait eight weeks, I was probably going to pull the trigger, right? So I I just, I was dumbfounded. I, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to turn. Even those that couldn't see me for eight weeks wouldn't schedule me. So I'm uh, like, I have no hope. I'm losing hope fast. And I'm circling the drain. And I just, I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know what I'm going to do. I was sitting here on my couch drinking. And the tears started going down my face. And I thought, I've got to find a way. I don't want to do this. I don't want to live this way anymore. We have a critical incident stress management team in-house. I reached out to the leader of that. I said, hey, man, I need help. And again, this is, this is the, I think, the biggest thing, educational piece I'll uh, advocate for and, and tell people is if someone approaches you with that, your first question should be, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Because even in that simple question, you can glean so much, but it also the person on the other side is going to realize that you care about them and that's going to start changing the dynamic for that person. So his first question to me was, are you okay? Are you going to hurt yourself? I said, I'm okay for now. I'm not going to hurt myself right now, but I need help. He says, stand by. So he, I don't know, about 15 minutes later, he says, 
are you available tomorrow at nine o'clock? I said, yes. He says, all right, Sonny, we'll see you tomorrow at nine o'clock. I started sobbing on my couch uncontrollably because it was finally like someone wanted to help me. Like the help was finally there. It was finally coming. And I just broke down. I was here by myself on the couch sobbing (laughs) with a bottle of beer in my hand and uh, just so grateful that tomorrow was going to be a new day. And I'm pretty sure that that night I actually slept the whole night through because I had finally done something or been able to break the chains of that mistress who was controlling me every night and, you know, dancing in the cracks of my mind and, and just, you know, convincing me of all this unsavory bullshit that wasn't true, you know? So. I mean, that's, that's the power that repair support and kudos to, you know, the, the, you know, the gentleman that you spoke to and, and that's, that's it. I was talking to a friend, Dustin Hawkins, who's been on a couple of times about red tape, about how that's the enemy of, of his progress of red line rescue and some of the initiatives that he's had. It's simply, you know, just job justification and, and, and just administrative things that need not be there and getting someone who is in crisis or close to crisis to the person they need to see as soon as possible is imperative. So talk to me about that first session then, because that journey that you've been through, you know, I mean, I know obviously not everything's going to be solved there, but that first step, what was it like for you? Uh, that first step was huge for me. Um, I, like I said, I think I slept that whole night for the first time in months. I, um, woke up that morning kind of definitely feeling better, um, hopeful. Um, you know, and, and so, I wrote about it in the book. I drove all the way to that session and don't remember a single thing about that drive. I just know I got there, right? I don't remember if the radio was on, what was on, um, you know, was I listening to sports radio? Was I listening to music? No clue, no clue whatsoever. My mind was just set to get help, you know, and, and what was this going to entail? And so I even uh, got there early cause I was worried about, you know, being seen walking into the office and all that stuff. I walked in the office, sat down. And I remember when Sonny came out, it was almost like, I don't know, in a strange way, magical, because there was the person who was going to help me, you know, and I just had this huge sense of, thank God, thank God for you. Um, Now, I will say that not everyone is that way. And that's a whole nother conversation about, you know, who's qualified, who's not qualified. And we can get into that. But I go into the session and we just kind of ex- exchange, you know, the niceties. Hi, my name's Derek. Da, da, da. Um, and, and I noticed that there was a box of Kleenex right there. And I'm like, and I just laughed and scoffed at her. I go, I'm not going to need that, you know? And she's like, okay, well, it's there if you need it type of thing. I sat there on the couch. We started talking started sharing my story and sure enough, the tears started welling up in my eyes. And as I, as much as I tried to fight them back, I, you know, reached down and grabbed that Kleenex and started wiping tears from uh, streaming down my face and, and just had a great session. And the end result was we started dealing with the subjects. We started tackling 
the issues. And but by the time I walked out of there, James, I can honestly tell you, I felt a million times better. I felt like this huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders because it was productive. And I think because of my childhood and the things we talked about and being, you know, kind of growing up, I, I grew up in kind of a middle child environment, even though I've got seven siblings. Uh, the way I grew up was my older brother, my younger sister. So I was the middle child. And I think all the way back to my childhood, I think I just wanted someone to listen. And I finally had someone who was listening. And it was such a huge relief for me, such a great opportunity for me to feel safe and trust in the person to let it go and know that I was going to get better from there. And she was phenomenal and so good. I, I, I'm glad, honestly, that the other 10 from EAP weren't able to see me because I don't know that any of them would have been as prepared to deal with my issues as she was. Brilliant. Well, obviously, that was a you know kind of talk therapy then. So as you went through did she bring in other, any other tools, EMDR or anything else, or did, was it purely the conversation that was working for you? Yeah, the things that we did were, you know, the cognitive therapy, the talking, um, the journaling, which, you know, led to the book uh, type of thing. And um, that was about it. We didn't have to, I, I think because I was so ready to talk to someone and so willing to open up and, and able to open up uh, that we didn't have to delve deep into all those issues. But I'm totally fascinated by uh, EMDR, the the use of MDMA and all this stuff, because I continue to study it because I want to be an advocate for other people. And my biggest thing is we have so few people trained to deal with us as professionals because, you know, we, we might go in there and start telling them stories and they're shocked and horrified by what we've seen. And they don't know how to guide us or treat us or anything. And so my biggest thing going forward is advocating for if the first therapist isn't right for you, find another therapist, find another route, find another mechanism. It's just because the first attempt doesn't work doesn't mean you should give up. You should keep trying. And so um, I'll relate this story. The book came out and it, it the day it came out, it, so no one had it yet. Uh, a good friend of mine, former lifeguard, reached out to me and said he'd been struggling and wasn't getting any help, didn't feel like he was making progress. And so we talked about it a little bit. And at the end of the day, he he his his clinician or therapist, whatever you want to call it, was kind of discounting his experiences, wasn't really validating that what he saw, you know, was traumatic enough or whatever. And so I advocated for him in that conversation to find someone else. So the next day he reached out, found someone else within a week, saw someone else. And he's like, man, greatest advice I've ever had. I found someone who gets it, who's helping me and all that. And so uh, I, I equate it to dating. If you go on a date with someone, you know right away whether or not you're going to see them again or not. And it should be the same way with your therapist. If you're not connecting with your therapist or, or your clinician, find someone else. Don't get stuck in a rut with someone who's not going to help you progress or grow. You need to be your biggest advocate. And that means finding the right person that you can relate to, that can relate to you and can help you along the way. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, it's a, a topic that comes up a lot, culturally competent clinician, which is a mouthful. Um, but, you know, it's so true. It's, it's hard enough finding a dynamic as, as another human being that you connect with, but then for them to actually understand what we've been through. I mean, as you probably heard me discuss on here, 
I've had people tell me that they had clinicians break down in tears when they started telling their stories. One guy was actually told to leave the office. I can't help you get out. So imagine what that does to someone in crisis. So I agree completely. And that's where Next Wrong, that's where Redline Rescue, some of these organizations, they can, you know, actually tell you, well, look, these people have been through this training. You know, they, they have been educated on, on what we do. They have been, um, you know, we, we've got rid of the people that don't fit us. You know, these are people that we trust now, but that's so, so important. But now the problem is this network getting that communication. So firefighters all around the country and police officers and medics and anyone else who, um, you know, is in our profession can easily find those people. And what I'm seeing now is I think there's just not enough of them for us. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely, it's, it's a problem. And that's, uh, Again, part of my advocacy going forward is trying to bring people into the fold. You know, the, the, how do we tap into those people who are going into the psychology field? Are they in college now? How do we get them to uh, decide they want to be a part of this and be, you know, helping first responders? Because you don't get all the way out into the field and all of a sudden be able to um, be a, a, a clinician for a first responder. So we need to get them while they're still in the education process and get them to choose this specialty, I guess. Um, and, and that's part of my kind of mission for going forward is how do we create those so that the next guy or gal doesn't run into what I ran into and can't be seen for eight weeks and, or doesn't even get a, a call back or an email back. I mean, the, the, to me, that is just so totally unacceptable. And even those people in that realm should be like, oh, the, the person you need to talk to is so-and-so, right? Like, I'm not capable, but this guy is, or this gal is, that's who you want to talk to type of thing. And, and, and until we can get there, we're at a deficit and we're, um, we're exposing our guys to the same thing I went through. And if the, if they're farther along and the help is not immediate, the consequence is too great to comprehend. And we really just need to advocate for more um, help on the first responder side because it's just not there, you know, and, and our mutual friend, um, I've become uh, familiar with next rung because our mutual friend, uh, Paul Gertis from Atlanta turned, turned me on to next rung and Blake Stinnett and those guys. And, and I advocate for them. I'm not familiar with uh, red line, but I try to, um, when I share stuff on social media, I try to link them in, um, a variety of them, different, um, agencies that I, I know do good work, uh, type of thing, because, you know, it's one thing to make a post. It's another thing to create the opportunity, click a link for that person who is like, yeah, that's me. I need help. I need help now. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to get to the book and also want to touch on the, the world police and fire games. But before we do one more area and you reminded me when you said about relationships, um, something you wrote about in the book that you don't really hear discussed was the impact of the trauma on your sexual performance, um, sure. which, yeah. you know, is, <laughs> is huge in, in certainly in women's lives, but definitely in, in men's lives. So talk to me about, you know, that realization and then, and then what worked for you. Yeah. So, uh, again, with all this, the anxiety related to the PTSI and everything like the, the effects on the body were just huge. And so I ended up with 
um, dealing with erectile dysfunction issues. And uh, I really, so it's interesting to look back because one of the things was when I first brought it up with someone that I was going to write a chapter on this in the book, they were concerned, like, are you sure you want to do that? Do you think that's the best idea? And I was certainly kind of uh, hesitant, you know, because it's very vulnerable and it's very intimate. But the more I stewed on it, the more I realized I absolutely had to write that chapter because the ultimate goal of the book is to be just intimate, honest, and vulnerable. And if I held anything back, then who's going to expose me or call me out for my bullshit or say I wasn't honest or true. And to include that chapter was about not so much me, but I guarantee you there's at least one other firefighter, one other cop, one other military guy out there who has suffered the same thing and not recognized the signal or the symptom as part of PTSI. So by the time I got to writing that chapter, I was absolutely convicted to sharing that because I wanted this story, my story, to be honest and real and relatable. And if I held anything back, the rest of the book to me didn't feel honest, real, and relatable. So um, I dealt with that. And um, I, I, you know, so I, listening to your podcast, there's certainly some other uh, potential. Uh, issues there, whether it's the cortisol levels compared to the testosterone. I'm not sure because I haven't had it tested. But what happened to me was I started having trouble um, performing and it became an issue. It became, it then became an anxiety issue. And, you know, uh, through my annual well wellness check through the fire department, it was, no, it was noted that my blood work showed that my testosterone had dropped over 30%. And I thought, ah, bingo, that's it. Get that, um, kind of addressed or, or, or taken care of, you know, taking testosterone shots still doesn't fix the problem. Uh, I think at that point it had really just the anxiety, the performance anxiety had just taken over. And so it was no longer about say the testosterone or the cortisone levels. And it really just kind of tweaked my brain and my head. And really it, it, it got corrected or got, I was able to overcome it with the relationship that I mentioned earlier, the girlfriend that broke up with me, you know, because of my dark path that I was heading down. Uh, not that either of us know it, knew it, but we, ha we, I was able to build that intimacy with a person to where that trust became, um, a part of that relationship. And so there was no longer that say performance anxiety and that, and so, you know, working through all of that, and, and that wasn't necessarily part of the therapy. It was just kind of, um, you know, just working through it in a sense and realizing that it wasn't necessarily um, at that point, it wasn't so much about the chemicals, but the mental aspect of it. And I needed to be able to trust in someone and kind of let go of some of that now you know, again, this goes back to what I said earlier, what works for me isn't going to work for the next person. We're all individuals. So the simple fact that I was able to uh, negotiate my, my PTSI through uh, cognitive therapy or talk therapy and not EMDR or MDMA doesn't mean that that's the answer for everybody. You know, everyone's at different levels. Everyone's at, um, you know, it, it might work for 
25% of the people, maybe 50 need EMDR and maybe another 25 need MDMA. I have no clue what those numbers are, but my advocacy or my, my message is don't stop, find what works for you. And I share these stories so that you're not alone. You know, I'm, I published it in a book and you know, certainly everyone who's ever read the book thinks they know me better than anybody else, right? But um, it's okay. You know, I, I want I want to help the next guy or gal, first responder who's dealing with these issues to understand what anxiety, depression, PTSI can do to the body if not dealt with and regulated. Yeah. Well, it's an important conversation to have, you know, and I think that rectal dysfunction, for example, um, even though it's funny that that term was actually invented by an ad, ad agency to sell Viagra. So that should <laughs> yeah. be a big red yeah, like, flag in itself. Like, like Valentine's Day at Hallmark? Right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Valentine's Day for the wiener. Um, but, uh, you know, that that is a huge red flag. I mean, obviously, there's the mental component, which definitely is, you know, a case, for example, in, in yours. Um, but then lesser understood thing, which I think is is probably a, a more frequent event is it's a, actually a terrifying precursor to heart disease because you, it's just all pipes. It's all blood vessels. So, Absolutely. you know, if there's occlusion in there, there's occlusion in other places. So the answer is not a pill. <laughs> the answer yeah. is to diet, exercise, whatever, the same way as with you. You know, the, the answer is to, to go through counseling and overcome those mental barriers that then will able, you know, be able to, to stop that monkey mind to be present with your partner and and then therefore you know, I'm assuming overcome that. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to touch on one more area before we go to the closing questions. You parallel a lot of these, you know, uh, mental health elements of of the book with your swimming career. So it kind of um, reaches a crescendo in China at the World Police and Fire Games. So let's just kind of you know end cap it with that story and then we'll move on to to talking about where people can actually find the book yeah no worries i uh you know the swimming was always my escape um it was where i found peace it was where i found success uh it's the first time i was actually athletically better than my older brother so it was always kind of my thing and so um i achieved you know relative you know, success, depending on your scope. I'm certainly not an Olympic champion or anything, but, you know, my dedication to the sport has always been there and I've always pursued it. And it's obviously given me a great opportunity to travel the world, uh, whether it's through the lifeguarding and Australia and others. Um, but I was starting to struggle in the pool unknowingly. Uh, again, if you kind of scale back in 2020 type of thing. Uh, it was clearly the anxiety of the PTSI that was attacking me, but I had no clue. I mean, uh, for example, again, this is not to um, toot my own horn. It's more to uh, give you kind of a um, perspective. So in the U.S. police and fire games several years ago, I set the open water record for the two-mile swim at about 32 minutes, I want to say. So fast forward to about four years ago, as I'm in the middle of this darkness and not realizing it, there were seriously days where I couldn't swim 25 yards across the pool without feeling the need to climb 
crawl my way out of the pool to catch my breath because I was so short of breath and none of it made sense. I was working out. I thought, well, I just need to, I need to come again tomorrow. I need to come again the next day. I need to make sure. And it wasn't every day, but there were certain, some days where I show up the pool and I just couldn't swim across the pool without feeling the absolute need to stop. And I had to convince my mind to just keep going, keep going, keep going. And so I really had this buildup of anxiety that I didn't ever recognize or understand until after I got help. Well, in that, I had showed up to the World Police and Fire Games in Los Angeles in 2017, and one of my better events is the 100 Fly. And that day, um, I chose not to swim that event because I'd been struggling to breathe. I'd been struggling in my training, like to swim 100 Fly in the pool just in training was causing me great you know, emotional stress to the point that that day in LA, I decided I wasn't going to swim it, but I also had to put on this uh, bravado, this shield of armor and convince my friends. I was like, eh, you know, I just, it's just not, I just don't want to do it today. It wasn't about, I couldn't, or I was afraid that I couldn't. It was like, eh, you know, I already won my gold medal yesterday. I'm good. You know? Um, and so that really kind of, after I started getting help, kind of stuck with me that I had quit on something I know I can do in my sleep, you know, and I really, it, and, and it really kind of took on a life of its own. I really kind of made that my final piece to recovery. I'm like, if I can overcome this last piece, if I can accomplish this, then I will know I'm healthy. I will know I'm well, I will know going forward that I can overcome anything. And so, um, leading up to China in 2019, that was my underlying drive for both going and both trying not to go as I dealt with the anxiety of it. Um, and so I kind of, you know, that was the third day of three days of swimming. And I knew like that was the penultimate for me. Like I had to break that last wall, you know? And so I wrote that story. Uh, and again, that, that, that China's trip is broken up into three chapters in the book because the journal for that was I journaled every day, uh, wrote down my thoughts, my everything, whether it was what we were touring, what I was doing with Chase, what I was doing with my friends, how my friends were reacting and all that. And, and so, um, yeah, the, the, the China chapter is kind of the final piece of recovery for me and in the book and uh, in a lot of ways, really the ultimate triumph, you know, uh, of the, over the, the, you know, over the mind that, that was controlling me for so long, right? Absolutely. Well, you, and you parallel it very well in the book. And I think it is a unique perspective because as we started, as we talked before we started recording, it's amazing that you were able to maintain that high level of athleticism despite the the maelstrom that was going on in your mind. So I think that, you know, it shows that the resilience of the human mind, it shows that we can overcome. And then therefore, once you actually able to truly address what's going on, as uh, a guy that's coming on the show, Ben Patrick talks about with injuries, I'm just about to embark on a knee, knee rehab protocol myself, you know, but he's like, you know, if you're achieving X with all this pain, Imagine what you can achieve if you get out of that pain. It's the same with the mind. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and resilience is a great word. Um, like we talked about before we started recording, I look back on that and I just, I, I, I mean, I honestly don't know how I maintained that level or achieved that level throughout that other than my sheer resilience and power of will to not let this control me, not let this define me and to prove that, you know, you can be at the point of considering suicide and you can overcome get back to a normal, healthy life, achieve and succeed. And that's, you know, my message is don't, don't give up, keep fucking going. And it's okay to not be okay. You know, like they're all contrite and they're all, you know, simple messages. But when you've lived it and you've survived it, there's a deeper meaning to all of that for sure. You know, and so for me, each day is another opportunity to just keep fucking going, you know? Absolutely. Well, the book is Continue, Surviving the Darkness, Choosing to Live. And just want to say as well, one thing I really loved about this, apart from the rawness of the story itself, was you actually included helpline numbers at the bottom of the page. So as people are reading, if it starts sowing a seed, if they go, shit, maybe I do need to call someone the resources are actually there in your book, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah, that was, that was uh, part of my mess, my mission as well. Like I, I, I wanted someone to be able to pick up that book, open up any page and find help. And so uh, really the first goal was to rotate a different website number on every page. The uh, girl that I, had formatted. She's like, yeah, no, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> She's like, that's too much work for me. I'm like, all right, cool. So we, we narrowed it down. I think there's about half a dozen that we uh, laced through the pages in the bottom of every page. And again, that was, that was the goal. So if you're a loved one of a first responder or your first responder yourself, and you're reading through that and you're recognizing those symptoms in either yourself or someone you love that's close to you, that help is right at the bottom of the page. And that was, again, I, I mean, I just, I think it is so um, shameful that we still have first responders committing suicide when help is available. And let's get that help to those people because they have so much to give to society, to society that we need to advocate for their well-being because we give up so much in our lives as first responders that tweaks us mentally and we're not really taught, we're, we're taught to treat the physical side of the job, you know, maybe be athletically fit, but we, but it doesn't work if the mind is not fit as well. So we need to be able to provide those outlets and those resources for the men and women in first responder world to be able to deal with the mental aspect of it and train the brain to achieve a higher level and not be weighed down by the shit we see. Absolutely. So for people listening, where can they find the book? Okay, so the the book is on Amazon. Uh, again, that goes back to our early conversations when I reached out to you. I uh, had no clue how to find a publisher or anything. Uh, you had published your book. You said, oh, it's easy, mate. Just do it on Amazon. And so I, I went that route. And uh, I I appreciate it because what it did for me was I felt it really gave me a freedom in that 
I could do whatever I wanted with the book. I didn't have a publisher dictating to me what I did. So like the way I laid it out, for example, the, the, the resources for help at the bottom of each page, you know, I don't know if a publisher would have let me do that, but it gave me the freedom to do that. So I self-published on Amazon. So it's, it's there, uh, both in, um, ebook and paperback, uh, versions. I still haven't, um, mustered up the, uh, time or the energy to go down and record it somewhere and, uh, add a audio book type of thing. But that's, hopefully coming soon. I got a couple weeks off in December and I need to just commit to uh, getting that done and making sure that that it's available in that format. Uh, but yeah, that's how we find the book. Beautiful. Yeah. Audiobook is, is work, but um, it's definitely uh, a medium that, you know, a lot of people, especially our population may not read, um, but they do commute sure. a lot. So it definitely gives another outlet. Well, I've got a couple friends that have refused to read the book. They're waiting for the audible version so they can listen into the car when they're traveling for work or, or doing whatever they're doing. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's your sign. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. Well, the first of the closing questions, we talked about your book. Is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend or books? It can be related to our discussion or completely unrelated. Yeah, I've got, I've got a few. Um, you know, obviously, I can't um, just... Um, fall back on your book or my book. Uh, but one of the ones you mentioned earlier that I put in the book is called The Mask of Masculinity by Lewis Howes. I think it's a fantastic book about the the way we're raising males in society to wear these masks to protect their masculinity. And I talked about that. I kind of carried that mask theme throughout my book. So that's one. Um, I recently read a book uh, by Mackenzie Cohen, uh, Paralympian called Breaking Free. Fantastic story about everything she's come over overcome. Um, the Green Lights by McConaughey was the one book that really kind of inspired me to be able to do set my book up the way I did to be free to do it because you know putting the pictures within the chapter I always thought that was a great idea because you might be talking about somebody and by the time you get to the middle section of pictures you're like wait who is that guy again or that person again so his book was both fantastic in its writing and its format um I loved this book called Fearless by Eric Blem it's a story of Adam Brown a uh, Navy SEAL who's no longer with us. I know you've had a lot of SEALs on your program. Uh, I don't know that this book gets a lot of attention, but it is a phenomenal story about overcoming um, maybe the deck that's been stacked against you and not accepting no for an answer, just like you with the um, color blindness. And then the one I'm reading right now that is fantastic, and I stumbled across this person on a Dateline episode. It's called A House in the Sky by Amanda Lindhout. And she was abducted by uh, Somali uh, jihadists or Muslims in Mogadishu when she was there uh, doing some um, humanity type of journalism. And it, uh, I'm not done with it yet, but it's uh, I'm about two-thirds through, and it's fantastic. Beautiful. Well, Fearless is on my bookshelf behind me, and I need to oh, nice. I need to reach out to Eric and get him on because I've done – Adam Brown obviously has a very famous uh, CrossFit 
Neo Hero Award. Sure. Um, yeah. I'm actually about to go on a cruise in two weeks, so I think I'll take that one on with me and make sure I've, I've read it by the time I get oh, back. Oh, you've not read it yet? No, I haven't. No, I've been oh, doing There's hundreds of books James, behind me. <laughs> James, James, you're going to love that book. It is, it is such a triumph of the human spirit, in my, in my opinion. I, I just... I I would have loved to have met Adam Brown for sure. Yeah, yeah. Not no, to give away too much, right? Yeah, no, but it's it's come up before as well. So again, there's my sign to uh, to pull it off and put it at the top of the pile. All right. Well, then, next question: Is there a movie and or documentary that you love? Yeah. So I've got a couple. Uh, I know this one's been mentioned before, but my octopus teacher, I think, is phenomenal, and I think it delves into a couple different things. It, it, for me, watching it. I could almost recognize where he was at the beginning. And there's a point where he almost gets to saying that maybe suicide was on his brain or an option, but he'd stop short of it. And I just, to me, I'm like, say it, it's okay. Say it. Right. But it's also, um, he's in these waters. He never puts on a wetsuit, even winter. He's just as board short. So it might relate to, to kind of the Wim Hof method or idea of, breath control and adapting to the elements. And I, I think it's fantastic. It's such a, it's such so well done. Um, I know we've talked about it before and I think you uh, watched it. The way to gold to me was phenomenal. I, I have so much respect for Michael Phelps and his uh, vulnerability and sharing that story. <clears throat> and I love how in that story, they talk about how these Olympic athletes are given everything they need when it comes to physical health and wellness, but zero on the mental side of it. And then you look back to most recent Olympics and Simone Biles and, and how she struggled with, you know, her issues and, you know, who's the first person that comes to her defense is Michael Phelps, who, who is probably the only person in the world who can relate to her, you know, and all these people who want to badmouth her. It's like, go walk a day in her shoes, then tell me that you could do it, you know? Um, there was a docu-drama movie called Worth, and it was Michael Keaton, and it, it's a it's a fan it's a fascinating subject matter. But it's basically the guy who had to take the um, survivors fund from 9/11 and figure out how to distribute it to all the families, and how do you draw those lines? Right? Great, great story. Great. Um, Great job by, by uh, Michael Keaton, but also, you know, obviously with any movie, there's some liberties in it uh, type of thing. But I, th I thought it was an interesting character study. And then I got one more from Michael Keaton that I just finished. It's a docu-series called Dope Sick. And it's all about the Oxycontin um, by Purdue Pharma. And just fascinating. A friend uh, recommended that to me. And so I came home, I started, I was halfway through the first episode. I text my friend, I'm like, this is phenomenal. He's like, Oh, what, what episode are you on? I'm like, I'm just on the first one. Yeah. You could just tell the way it was set up that it was so phenomenal. Again, you have to understand that there's probably because it's a docu series and not an actual documentary that there's some liberties taken, but the story behind it is just so fascinating about, you know, how pharmaceuticals, you know, kind of dictate our treatment in society. We don't treat people to get better. We just treat the sickness, you know, and um, yeah, the symptoms and dope sick kind of um, talks about not only treating the symptoms, but how they further created more symptoms to keep treating them, 
you know, it's fascinating. Yeah, actually, I I came across that and I was going to watch it because I've I had um you know several people that have, have talked about you know the opioid crisis and the mental health underbelly and the link to organized crime and you know because I mean obviously with the pill mills here in Florida when they were shut down well that just opened the floodgates for the heroin you know um, usage and you have people that were on prescription meds that are now heroin addicts you know so yeah, yeah there's absolutely. so much that needs to be discussed with that absolutely and I've seen the opioid crisis firsthand as a first responder. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've seen the kid who I've had to deliver the news to a parent that their 20 year old son was dead because they took too much fentanyl, you know, but I've also been there where we've given, uh, the Narcan and they've come back from it and they, within five, 10 minutes, they're AO times four. And now we can't transport them. So the new policy here in Kern County is they leave Narcan behind in case they overdose again and teach the, show the family how to administer it. I'm sitting there going, how about if we just deal with the fentanyl problem and get rid of it, you know, instead of just, you know, waiting for them to overdose again. Yeah. Well, the uh, mental health problem that causes people to take it in the first place. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Absolutely. So my number one, I know it's a uh, top of your list, too, is Michael Phelps. I think he'd be phenomenal, uh, especially with the uh, documentary that I mentioned previously. Uh, if there was any way for me to help you get in touch with him, I would do it in a heartbeat. Um, uh, my second is Amanda Lindhout, who uh, wrote the book House in the Sky. Again, I became familiar with her story when they did a Dateline piece on her, and it was about her abduction in Somalia. But it was from the angle of her mother, who worked with federal authorities to get her release or her or um, escape um, managed. I'd love to hear her side of the story, you know, about her capture, her captivity and everything. I think she'd be phenomenal, especially reading this book. Um, I know in the past you had three uh, people on from the UK who were doing a surfing program. Yep, surf well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, in that, they mentioned my friend Carly Rogers, who started the ocean therapy in California with the Jimmy Miller uh, Foundation. Uh, I can get you in direct contact with her. I'm sure she'd love to come on. She'd be fantastic. Well, let's do uh, it then because that's double yeah. recommendation now. So, yeah. yeah. And then the last one is uh, Mackenzie Cohen, who's the Paralympian who wrote the book Breaking Free with my good friend Holly. And through Holly, I can get you in touch with her. But she uh, – and I'll, I, I don't have it – on the tip of my tongue, but she had an osteoporosis, um, osteo something disease, but basically brittle bone disease. And so she dealt with that her whole life, overcame, swam in college, Paralympian gold medalist, world record holder. I think she'd be fantastic as well. All great, great, great suggestions. So yeah, any anyone that you can help me with, that's the thing. I mean, the biggest barrier to getting guests on the show is purely just getting the person that I'm trying to get to understand what this is about. And, you know, I would say probably 95% people then say yes. So when someone says, Hey, you know, I was on this, I can tell you it's coming from a good place. Then that eliminates all the, the middle people. Yeah, absolutely. I think Carly would definitely be willing to do it on my recommendation. Uh, Holly, I know has read my book and is a huge fan. And I think if I reached out to her, she would help get you in touch with Mackenzie Cohen. Um, I, you know, I, I, 
regularly uh, uh, spouse the values of your podcast. So I think um, most people know that if I were to uh, put them in touch with you, they'd, they'd take it with an uh, open mind. So Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you for all those suggestions. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online, what do you do to decompress these days? Oh, yeah. Great stuff. So, uh, you know, swimming was always my outlet. Um, Then CrossFit became a big part of my life. Uh, I love um, lifting weights. There's nothing to me greater than a good clean um, or a good snatch when you hit it right, you know, you just, you just feel like you're right in the moment, you know, um, my past, uh, surfing was an outlet. And so one of the things I've done is, um, a couple of your guests recently talked about skateboarding as their outlet. And so I have started taking my skateboard out and just skating the neighborhood, even if it's just down to the mailbox and back to just to kind of have that, uh, physical and mental activity. And then the last thing is when you put your, put it out publicly like two weeks ago or a month ago about shitting yourself or shatting yourself. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I stumbled across an article about micro stacking. And so I really have um, taken that to heart. So um, because I'm an advocate for, you know, mental well-being and post-traumatic growth. One of the things I've done is uh, made reading part of my daily routine. So at night, maybe half hour, an hour before I go to bed, I turn off the TV, I dig into my book, which right now is that uh, House in the Sky, read a couple uh, pages, a chapter, then I go to bed. In the morning now, when I get up, I get up, I don't um, immediately go to the coffee pot, I drink a, a cup of water, I sit down, I do a breathing exercise. It's called uh, box breathing. And I read that from um, an article on uh, the Navy SEALs, and that's what they do to help reduce stress. So I'll sit in, in the uh, on the floor for five minutes every morning. I'll do some box breathing. So breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four, hold for four. When I'm done with that, then I open up the book. I read an, another chapter, a couple pages. Then I get into the rest of the routine of my day, whether it's a coffee pot working out and, and those types of things. But I really make sure that I dedicate those portions of the day to myself and my own mental well-being as opposed to letting life interrupt it all. I love it. Yeah, you'll actually be interested in um, Rachel Vickery's um, episode, which is coming out. It'll be the next one. So what, what are we recording today? Tuesday. So it'll be Thursday's episode. But she talks a lot about breathwork. She was uh, an elite gymnast herself, and she has a kind of unique perspective on you know, a lot of us do breath work with all good intention, but she's like, well, that's, you know, five minutes of your whole day. Let's talk about the other, you know, 23 plus hours and what are you doing normally? You know, how are you setting that baseline? Um, all right. Well, then if people listening, we talked about the book, where can they reach out to you online? So I've got a uh, professional, I guess, or dedicated uh, page on both Instagram and Facebook called Continue by Derek Robinson. Uh, so you can reach out to me there, uh, either Instagram or Facebook. And um, I try to uh, post positive messages uh, a couple times a week. Uh, today, I think, is the last day of a series I've called uh, Tuesday Tease, where I've kind of gone deeper into each chapter of the book. So there's a whole history of each chapter of the book, stuff that maybe didn't make it into the books, maybe stuff that got edited out or 
you know, just a deeper dive. Uh, but yeah, it's all out there. And, uh, I try to be responsive to messages. Matter of fact, I've helped, uh, I remember, uh, one lady reached out because her brother was fit everything that was, uh, that I profiled in the book and I was able to get her, uh, in contact with some people that were able to help her brother. So, um, if you reach out, I will get back to you and, uh, help you help guide you through any resources at all possible. Because again, we need to stop, um, the, the epidemic of first responders choosing suicide as their best option in life, because it's not hundred percent. Well, Derek, I just want to say thank you. I mean, as I say, you've already heard me say this kind of closing statement before, but when someone tells their story, a story that creates so much emotion that they're in tears, for example, on here, that's asking them to relive that. It's taking a little piece from them. You know, it's pushing the needle the, the opposite way. But, you know, the impact of that on people listening is so profound. So I want to thank you first for being so courageous, for telling your story, for, you know, for going to that place so that people can, can hear the story and then for portraying it in the book as well. Thank you. It uh, truly means a lot. And, uh, it, uh, it helps validate that, uh, what I'm doing is right. You know, thank you. Thank you.